to be dealt with. We need to do our Let's thing. Let's do this. Let's do this. So, and and had Neil sent in a bunch of articles and just got to say happy Thursday, everybody. We're almost to Friday. <laughs> and what else is going on? That song, as people were asking, and I knew people would because that's a, that's a banger, that one. That's from Muramasa, um, who's a... Uh, He's more of a producer, young, very young guy out of the UK who just exploded onto the music scene. Like everybody in hip hop was freaking out over this really young white kid uh, out of, uh, out of, I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I think he's from Bristol. Anyway, um, super, super talented, like it just debut album and it, sent shockwaves through the hip-hop community just the way that he did rhythms and everything and that track is called lovesick and i think i'm trying to remember the name of his debut album might also be lovesick but anyway like nearly every track on the record is just beyond impressive and then let's see uh if you are new I don't see the new people haven't shown up yet because all the hardcore people jump in right when we start because everyone knows we start on time. But uh, let's give it 10 minutes and then the we'll hardcore go. people have nothing else to do. They no, just want to hang it, here. It ain't that. It's, the hardcore <laughs> people are multitasking. We prioritize this. <laughs> we're like, we're like cleared our calendars. We have basically, we wait till five to seven or whatever it is, your time. And then we wait to click that button. It's kind of fun. It's good. Okay. So, um, um, if you hopefully you have a headline to share uh, from your part of the world professionally or geographically uh, and just to give you you know five or ten minutes to do that and let's go through the big 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 potentially boring but not always boring but um, just kind of ranking from the top the top the top five here's the top five right now number one of the biggest stories in tech at the moment is from Politico that the attorney generals from 36 states and D.C., which is not a state, although it might be before Biden's out, um, 36 states and D.C. file antitrust suit against Google targeting their Play Store practice of making developers, Android developers, use their billing system and charging their 30% commission. And this should come as no surprise to nobody who's been paying attention. Um, unless you've been hiding under a rock somewhere, you know that developers are not too happy about both Apple and Google and the fact that using their, if you make an app for their stores on their smartphone devices, they force you essentially force you softly force you to use their store to sell your app so that people can discover your app and then in doing so um claim that they are removing all of the crap that tries to get into this app uh, app store and so that gives a great experience to everybody and it creates a uh uh a kind of a hygiene, you know, they remove every, all the people who would be, you know, pissing in the well, the common waterways, and it takes uh, 
it makes a pleasant experience and safe experience for everybody. And for that, they charge a 30% tax in the city. It's kind of like, I, I do often, I don't know if other developers do, but I always think of these as cities. Like there's Appletown or Apple Island, and then there's Google Island. And on Google Island, they have a clean water system over there. And they have a clean water system because they prevent people from shitting in the pools and, you know, behaving immorally as best they can and so they have clean drinkable water on that island so does apple and so as a city they have a 30 percent tax in that city because they have clean water because the argument is of course if they didn't police the waterways on their islands you would have bad actors pooping and peeing all all up in those water supplies dumping toxic chemicals and um and then the water would no longer be drinkable and it would be you know um not a fun place to live or to be as an ecosystem. And there's some truth to that. There is an element of truth to that. So this case, though, that was just brought against Google of 36 states uh, and D.C., so 36 and a half, suing Google for alleged antitrust violations in its Android app store, the lawsuit filed in California federal court is the third by state attorneys general to target the company for alleged antitrust violations. So... Uh, the, this, that's interesting that, um, now they've had a total of three antitrust violations, this one around their Android store and how the developers don't really, aren't so happy about paying this 30% fee anymore. And and Google knows this, Google knows that developers are not happy at all about this. And so they've preemptively done some very clever things that I imagine this article is going to highlight, which is they've reduced their fee to 15% for smaller companies who are making less than X number of dollars from the store, which is a clever preemptive move to kind of avoid this. It Well, it didn't seem to help because here we are. Anyway, a group of 36 states and DC sued Google on Wednesday, yesterday in an antitrust case, challenging the company's control over the Android app store, opening a new front in regulators' attempts to rein in the search giant, the suit final California federal court led by Utah, North Carolina, Tennessee, New York, Arizona, Colorado, and Nebraska is the latest in a series of major antitrust cases filed against the tech industry's biggest forces after years of brewing unhappiness with the growing health and power of Silicon Valley. It comes just nine days after the antitrust crusade suffered its first major setback when a federal judge in Washington dismissed the FTC's antitrust suit against Google. I'm sorry, against Facebook on the grounds that the agency hadn't offered enough evidence that the world's largest social network is a monopoly. In addition to Wednesday's suit, Google also faced a suit that the Justice Department and 14 states filed in October focused on Google's efforts to dominate the mobile search market. One from 38 states and territories filed in December also focused on search and a third suit by 15 states inter- related to the Google's power over the advertising technology. So again, this is three separate antitrust suits on three different fronts. And Google has responded by saying this is all meritless because um, the changes that um, the plaintiffs demand for the Google Play Store uh, would risk raising costs for small developers impeding their ability to innovate and compete and making apps across the Android ecosystem less secure for consumers, right? People are going to start pissing and dumping toxic waste and nuclear waste in in the common waterways. 
That's what Google's trying to remind everybody. And here's the, another quote. This lawsuit isn't about helping the little guy or protecting consumers, the company said. It's about boosting a handful of major app developers who want to benefit of Google Play without paying for it. Oh, snap. They're calling them out. And there's some truth to this, too, which is Epic Games, the maker of Fortnite, uh, was leading the, the charge against Apple, Apple's app store. And saying, well, why are we paying 30%? You're making billions of dollars off of us alone by charging us 30%. This is ridiculous. We should sell directly to our customers. And so, yeah, there's precedence of the fact that it is these really big, because the little, by the way, let me just unpack. Let me tell you what's really going on here in a way that most people don't understand. That Google's right. It's the big apps that are upset about this. But here's why. Because as a little app, what the App Store does is give you visibility and, and distribution. Nobody knows about your app. People are going to discover your app through the App Store. And you're more than happy to pay 30% for that. Because you would have got zero otherwise. No one would ever have heard of you. So the little apps actually kind of like this arrangement. That's not so much the issue. And the fact that it got lowered to 15%, well, all the better. What a sweet deal. The big apps who have big customer bases, who have their own marketing departments, who have their own audiences. Imagine uh, Adobe, for example, who even predates these app stores by a decade, right? They've been around forever. Everyone knows Photoshop. Everybody knew about Photoshop before the App Store. Nobody's going to the App Store wondering, I wonder if there's an app that helps me uh, edit photos, you know, like put text on top of it and, you know, resize the photos and change the colors. Of course, you already knew there's an app for that. It's called Photoshop. So you didn't learn about Adobe Photoshop from the App Store. So why should Adobe be paying Apple to be sold inside of their App Store when the customer already knew about Adobe Photoshop? You see what I'm saying? Right. So Adobe correctly feels, why are we paying 30%? These customers already knew our brand, our name, and already came looking for us in your app store. If anything, Apple should be paying us because now people are coming to your store. We add value to the store. It's very, very, very similar to the argument we had yesterday about Spotify, where the Beatles and Metallica, um, yeah, Spotify should probably be paying the Beatles and Metallica to be inside of those, uh, inside of uh, Spotify, where small artists like Muramasa, you know, who I discovered in some part do actually do the Shazam, to be honest. But anyway, small, small, small artists tremendously benefit from Spotify because nobody's heard of them and they're getting massive distribution. And those artists are more than happy to be in that ecosystem and to be unpaid in that ecosystem. They're, they're being exposed. They're getting fans, yada, yada, yada. So Google is correct in their response that this lawsuit isn't about helping the little guy. Uh, it's about boosting a handful of major app developers who want the benefits of the Google Play without paying for it. Although I would take one small issue in that they don't necessarily want the benefits of Google Play. They would actually prefer to be able to sell directly. Honestly, they would be fine with that. These really big ones who... They're not trying to get discovered through the Google Play Store. They just want to be able to sell directly on your devices without paying you the tax of being on your island. So um, that's where this is all uh, heading. Uh, I'll pause to see if anyone has a comment they may want, may want to make, although I will finish my point by concluding that 
I think uh, Google's going to win this case because Google's super clever and Google has made it possible for apps to quote unquote side load, which means put their apps, uh, make it possible for people to install their apps without going through the app store. So you can install Photoshop directly without going through the app store. That's called side loading, you know, installing apps without going through the app store. So because Google is now making side loading available, and by the way, they've kept it hidden. 99.999% of people don't know you can side load apps. Uh, but Google's known that this day would come of these this exact headline that we are reading together right now of 36 states uh, suing over the uh, Android App Store monopoly. Google foresaw this from the day they launched the App Store. They knew we would get to the point where they would be called a monopoly. And they said, when that day comes, boy, obey, I guarantee you, you're going to start seeing uh, not billboards and bus uh, adverts, but you're going to start seeing awareness about uh, side loading and direct downloading of apps. And they're going to make it known, oh, no, there's no problem here. If you're a, uh, we're not forcing anyone into our app store at all. And that will make the case meritless because there's a direct way for people to do this. Apple, on the other hand, is not so lucky. Apple's not really allowing side loading. They do, but boy, do they make it difficult. And it could be exposed how they're intentionally making it difficult. Google's not really making it difficult. They're just not showing you where that door is. You kind of got to figure that out on your own. And what I think is going to have to happen is they're going to have to be a little more visible about how to do direct installing of apps uh, without the app store. Comments from anyone on stage? Or feel free, if you're in the audience, feel free to raise your hand if you want to jump in on this. Or if you know somebody who's r not in the room at the moment, you have a friend who really should comment, then feel free to ping them in. That's the whole format of how we do tech news around the world. Um, so that's the biggest story. That's Article number one out of the top five uh, tech articles of the moment. So the number two article of the moment is Donald Trump suing Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, as well as Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, and Sundar Pichai, the CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, and Google, claiming that the companies have violated his First Amendment rights, where he's now putting together a class action lawsuit and this is truly cockamamie, honestly, now looking at the responses of legal scholars who say this is just essentially what this is, is a fundraising campaign for Donald Trump, because this is this really stands no chance of winning whatsoever, because, as I'll read here, former President Donald Trump filed a lawsuit yesterday. We watched it live. Now we're now in the era of anyone can get on a live stream and do their own PR events. And somebody did point out he he certainly did go to some effort to create the appearance that he was doing it from the White House with staffers behind him who appeared to be, you know, they're in suits with he certainly creating the impression that it was like an official presidential type of thing. Um, so it was kind of a, a, a hypnotic uh, Adam Curtis, you know, uh, moment where he's creating this scene where he's at a presidential podium with this president white house looking facade behind him. And, you know, he, so anyway, former president Donald Trump filed lawsuits Wednesday against tech giants, Facebook, Google, and Twitter, and their CEOs alleging censorship against him and other conservatives. 
Now, here's where he's going to have a real problem. I'll explain. The class action suits argue that Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, owned by Google, violates Trump's First Amendment rights when they suspended his accounts following the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. By the way, he's not the first person to try this. Lots of people have tried to sue saying I got banned, blocked from these apps. Uh, they have every right to block or ban you from their apps, uh, by the way. And it's in the, it's called the terms of service. You just have to read it before you click accept. So the lawsuit also want the companies to be considered state actors instead of private companies. Good luck with that. You, it's worth a shot. Subject to the same First Amendment restrictions as government agencies. Okay. The lawsuit also requests, now here's where it gets interesting. The lawsuit also requests the termination of Section 230 of the Communication Decency Acts with shield tech companies from being held legally accountable for the content posted on their platforms. Well, where where have we heard this recently? Oh, that's right. In India with Twitter, where India did remove Twitter's platform protections in India which set the stage. It's a soft way of telling that app to get out. You're done here. You cannot, those, these apps cannot function or exist without that because then they become directly responsible for anything that gets said on their platforms. And in a country like India with 1.5 billion people, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, Indians are such lovely people. I'm sure these 1.5 out of these 1.5 billion people, not a single one of them is going to possibly say something offensive on that platform, right? I mean, how long? Uh, that'll take years before somebody says something offensive on Twitter. I mean, have, has anyone ever seen any? I've never seen anything offensive on Twitter. I mean, that just doesn't really happen, does it? So, no, no. no it, it'll probably take a very long time. So, the point is, is in, in this effort to remove Section 230, you're now going into this kind of territory, uh, this new kind of clever trickery of how to uh, get these platforms on, on a very slippery slope indeed, because these platforms cannot exist uh, and function without the Section 230. It's just it wouldn't be possible because they're too big. They're not like a newspaper that can control everything that's being said in the newspaper or in the magazine. They are far, far bigger than a newspaper or a magazine. They have billions of users. They cannot control. Imagine a newspaper with a billion journalists. There's no way to control a billion journalists and all the shit that they're writing in your publication every day. It's just not technically, even with AIs, it's not technically possible. So, uh, point number two, legal experts said that the lawsuits are likely to be rejected as similar lawsuits alleging ideological discrimination on social media platforms have consistently been thrown out. Independent studies have not shown a bias against conservative viewpoints on social media. One 2020 study from The Economist showed that Twitter's algorithm rewarded inflammatory language and outlandish claims. Facebook's data shows that right-wing content sees the most engagement on the platform, and that's very easily verifiable. And any right-wing person knows this because uh, what's his name? The Dan Bonzino and uh, the Blaze and what's the young, uh, very clever Jewish dude who does his daily news show? Uh, ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro. Who's who's actually you? Whether or not you agree with his politics, you have to admit the guy, the kid's sharp as tax. Um, ben is uh, a very clever dude, and 
is dominating uh, Facebook and he's right wing. And there's there's no argument about this. In fact, out of the top 10 every day, the top 10 videos each day, all 10 of them are right wing conservative. So there's no silencing of right wing conservative uh, kind of conspiracy. I mean, they might be silencing extremism on both sides and both sides are feel that at times they're being but we've gone into the nitty-gritty essence and details of this here in tech news around the world in very large part thanks to michelle who really gives us the insider perspective of how the algorithms kick in when people start flagging any kind of extremist views then the and by the way for those who haven't heard this little spiel before it's it's worth reiterating because it today in july of 2021 when people see extremist stuff on social networks, they flag it. And when when it gets enough flags, it gets quarantined and sandboxed and removed temporarily to be reviewed. And then a human has to come in and review it. And in many cases, that human is not the highest paid person in the world. And if it is obviously offensive, they remove it. <clears throat> if they feel like it's actually just a cultural misunderstanding and that the algorithm hold down something preemptively, they'll put it back. But in many, many cases, it's not so easy. And they got to get the lawyers and the PR department involved to make a really uh, clear decision on this. It's, it's a more nuanced issue. So imagine how much time it takes to get the lawyers and the PR department together to have a meeting to decide what we should do with this particular you know, hashtag that people are using. That's going to take, yeah, hours probably 24 hours, especially with different time zones. What happens if it, this happens in you know, Asia and the team doing this review is in the US? You're talking a day at minimum to figure this out. Well, during that downtime, the 10,000, 20, 30, 40,000 people who used that hashtag or that phrase, um, for example, Free Palestine, should that be taken down or not? Well, let's look at how people are using it. And the resign Modi. These were both actual examples of this. I'm, I'm not picking. Um, I'm not making up examples. Those were real examples where this happened. And people who used Free Palestine noticed that their and people who used resign Modi noticed that their content was missing for a while, for like a day and a half or two, and they start assuming. And I don't blame them for assuming, ah, Facebook is against Palestine. Ah, Facebook is pro Modi. Well, no, not really. It's just the behavior of, you know, you flagged it. Uh, we removed it. We're reviewing it. It takes time. Our lawyers are debating it and our PR team's figuring out how to respond. And now two days later, they put it all back. Sorry to everybody. We've re reinstated all the content. So, um, in doing that, if you, especially if you do that more than once to any one side, you start running the risk, the very real risk of that side starting to assume you are fundamentally against their views. You are silencing their team. This is an unfair fight, right? And both sides on the extremes are starting to feel this way, by the way. Uh, so despite the fact that Ben Shapiro and Dan Bonagino and, um, Glenn Beck are all the top rated shows in Facebook land, which are all right. So, you know, clearly right leaning. So anyway, 
um, the Facebook data shows that the right-wing content sees the most engagement on the platform. Statistically true, factually true. Some Republicans and Democrats have argued in recent years that Section 230 should be reformed, uh, which, yeah, now that's the reasonable adult-like perspective because the Section 230 is very, very, very old and very much predates social media by decades. So, yeah, let's let's, kind of make new... Um, regulation around the you know the advent of social media so that we can ha- have a better uh, kind of rule book to play by in this new game of uh, social media. So that's sort of the second biggest article of the day. Any uh, pause again for possible comments, potential comments from anybody? Going once, going twice. Michelle? Just, I'll just chime in and say what you were describing is... Um... The article we talked about a couple of weeks ago that said ad-supported social networks are as dangerous to civilization as climate change is. And you just described sort of why it, it makes it very difficult to make proper decisions when falsehoods and are, get the same play as the truth. Yeah. So it's pretty scary. It's just, it, well, part of it is the timing. I mean, it long-term, long-term, someday, the algorithms will be able to uh recognize this stuff in near real time and we can you won't have that two day delay of people feeling like they're um quarantined and whatnot and first of all people don't realize when their content is missing they don't say oh i know what's happening uh they're just reviewing it and the lawyers are being called and the pr team is being called and it'll take a couple days no they're not <laughs> thinking that at all that's not a known thing, what we just described. We only know that because Michelle helped us understand, you know, that this is happening globally. It's a global thing. And there's content being pulled down every hour of every day in every country around the world. And this is a, an incredibly massive, complex problem. Um, I'm wondering if it, perhaps it would be beneficial to inform the user, hey, your content has been removed and here's what happens next. Just so that they, you know, get their finger off the panic button. Yeah. And... Your cold is important to us. You're number 721. Yeah. But you're talking about the extreme stuff that gets taken down, but you also just said that the top 10 videos come from somebody who doesn't believe climate change is something we should address. I mean, that's just, that's, that's scary. I mean, and, and that's not being taken down. That, that, that's quote mainstream. Right. And can I have a question, Tyler, on the because right at the front of that article, the request was for reclassification. I think you said to be a state actor. Was it the? I just didn't. You know, the right back at the front of it, um, the Trump one. There the, is that the request. Did I pick it up right? You're talking about the Trump lawsuit. Yeah, you know the way. Yeah, they want they. Yeah, part of the suit is they want. Um, these platforms, the, the the big tech companies, to be considered like state utilities, like the water company and the electricity company, that it's a fundamental um, public utility, because then it can be regulated very, very differently than a private company. Okay, got it. Because private companies, you. you know, have autonomy. You know, it's it's my I'm, and this is the irony that it's Republicans that are you know kind of leading this. Because Republicans are the ones that are like, you can't force a cake shop to make a cake for a gay couple. <laughs> and and here they are trying to force, you know, this Facebook cake shop to let this uh, 
gay guy, you know, have his wedding uh, on Facebook. But what there, there's a little bit of a discount, you know, incon yeah. inconsistency yeah. in the in the arguments there. So, the third biggest story at the moment is that TikTok is testing uh, U.S. users to apply for jobs with video resumes posted with a tick hashtag TikTok resumes. Thirty plus brands joined the pilot, including Target. Shopify, our friends at Shopify, who, by the way, the the stock is just rocking. If you've been watching, if you if you participated in getting your beak wet in the Shopify bonanza, you, you're doing quite well. Uh, and the WWE and 27 other brands are already on board with TikTok resumes, and I absolutely love this. And I think this is a brilliant. Um, I'm. In one way, I was going to say I'm surprised there isn't an app specifically for this because this is how Gen Zs and maybe even millennials, but certainly Gen Zs operate these days. You know, it's like uh, they, they're not so hot on LinkedIn. They want to make a little video resume and apply. And by the way, let me just reveal the, uh, the point that when the startup that I was doing with Jason Calacanis, Mahalo, the, co the company was called Mahalo. My one of my early roles was hiring uh, teams of people. And the thing I did was we were using Craigslist to give you context. This is back in 2007 when Craigslist was still the common way to put post job listings and to apply for jobs. I don't know if many of you remember Craigslist. And we've come a long way since Craigslist. But when I made my Craigslist post, I said, listen, don't send me a text reply. There's a new thing called YouTube. Record, find a camera. Most laptops have cameras and most people have smartphones with little cameras. Record a video, upload it to YouTube and send me the link to the YouTube video so that I can see your video. So I was doing exactly this. It was a video resume. I don't I don't even want to see your physical resume. Just send me a video of you telling me why you want this job, why, you know, how you are suitable to this job. That I that was one of the, and I only did that out of force because what I realized was when I was bringing people into the office who I thought I liked on paper, they would come into the office and I could tell within five minutes if uh, the meeting was over or not. Uh, in in nearly every case, uh, you know, when I realized ah, I made a mistake and now you have to sit for at least 30 minutes and pretend and waste really 30 minutes that I didn't have um, because I'm doing this ideally 100 times a day to, you know, figure out who is right for the team. So. I'm a huge believer in this kind of video resume kind of stuff, honestly. So I think this is a tremendous uh, addition. And it's a, it speaks to the fact that really nobody's jumped on this. Another startup should have done this. And we did have one in Sweden called Selfie Jobs, which was Tinder for, but video, it was like Tinder, but video for jobs called Selfie Jobs. And uh, it didn't work out. And now TikTok is doing video resume jobs, which I think is brilliant. So uh, anyone with a comment on TikTok jobs? The, the other thing, of course, is that now that we're going remote, it's a natural, natural fit for all of that because it's like there there is no more coming into the office for the interview. You're going to have to figure out a way to do it by video anyways. The fourth... Uh, Tyler, but yes. the, the, uh, the only comment I have on that is I think um, just to 
uh, assert that there's only that that's that's the direction it's all going inside companies, uh, uh, large companies mostly. Um, people are using videos to to uh, uh, you know promote people or, or to, to to for people to get visibility for new jobs and other things. And I, I firsthand, uh, my daughter told me that she she had to do two or three videos um, to uh, you know to get into a specific department and different things. So. Uh, this is definitely a useful way for people to kind of uh, show themselves um, and, you know, and, and, uh, and, and you actually get to assess people. But of course, inside company, you've got other data about people already. Yeah. Um, what else? There, here, there's a, so we did what? The top three, right? So we're, we're on number four. And th this one's a bit juicy. The, uh, from the Wall Street Journal and others, a... A Dutch security researcher group said it notified Kaseya, and you may remember the name Kaseya because that's the company that is at the center of this massive global um, ransomware attack, which is re also related to the Swedish supermarkets because they were using Kaseya, if I understand correctly. And there's been 1,500 companies impacted by this. And... So keeping that in mind, that Kaseya, it was basically Kaseya's partners who were all affected. And a Dutch security researcher group said it notified Kaseya three months ago about one of the flaws that was exploited in the devastating ransomware attack last week. So they were warned about the vulnerability that led to this massive thing. And now that could potentially open them up to some lawsuits. Uh, President Biden is meeting officials to discuss recent attacks, including latest affecting the latest affecting hundreds of organizations around the world. And the article from the Wall Street Journal says uh, that the software company linked to the massive ransomware attack began last week. Uh, that began last week and has impacted hundreds of organizations around the globe. Was notified in early April of a cybersecurity vulnerability used in the attack, according to the Dutch security research group that discovered the issue. Kaseya is a Miami-based software supplier that helped technology service providers manage computer networks, was told of a serious cybersecurity hole in its Kaseya VSA software on April 6th. Victor Gevers, a chairman of the Dutch Institute of Vulnerability Disclosure, said Wednesday, Mr. Gevers' organization, which is a volunteer-run security group, discovered the flaw. Here's his quote. When we discovered the vulnerabilities in early April, it was evident to us that we could not let these vulnerabilities fall into the wrong hands. Mr. Gever said in a blog post, after some deliberation, we decided that informing the vendor and awaiting the delivery of a patch was the right thing to do. Kaseya declined to comment on the timeline, but said that Mr. Gever's organization has been a great partner and we value the service they provide. The flaw reported by the Dutch group was one of seven vulnerabilities the group reported to Kaseya's concerning its software. Mr. Gevers said, Kaseya has said multiple flaws were chained together in the attack but it wasn't clear exactly how the attack was carried out or the extent to which the flaws were used. Security researchers who uncovered flaws in the software frequently alert the companies discreetly before announcing any problems publicly in order to allow the patch before hackers are made aware of them, but sometimes hackers independently detect the same security flaws before they are fixed. Mr. Gever said Sakea responded with urgency once it was notified of the vulnerabilities in its software and worked to quickly 
issue two patches, one in April and the other in May, that addressed some of the security issues. But Kaseya is still working to fully patch its VSA software. In an update on its blog Wednesday, Kaseya said it was it had been unable to resolve an unidentified issue that blocked the release. We have no indication that Kaseya is hesitant to release a patch, Mr. Gever said. Instead, they are still working hard to make sure that after their patch, the system is as secure as possible to avoid a repeat scenario. So, interesting update on that. And the fifth big headline of today is that China cracked down on its tech giants, wiped out a combined $823 billion off their market value since February peak with Tencent, Alibaba, Kwai Xiao as the biggest losers. Selling in technology sector seen continuing this quarter. Hang Seng Tech Index in China has lost 31% from February as a result of all of these um, big tech crackdowns. And relatedly, the, the headline is China plans rule changes requiring Chinese companies to seek approval to list overseas. Well, that would have solved the whole DD problem, wouldn't it? Um, even if the unit selling shares is incorporated outside of China. Ah, wow. That's holy cow. So even if you are a, a registered company in Delaware or Singapore or London or wherever, if you are physically based in China, you need to, even if your company's, you know, um, registered outside, incorporated outside of China, but if you're doing business in China, you will, according to China, China, China plans rule changes requiring Chinese companies to seek approval to list outside of China, even if the um, even if uh, the unit of the company which is selling the shares is incorporated outside of China. And what they say that because, for example, um, TikTok does have an American company. It created a separate U.S. company to operate in America uh, for compliance reasons and potentially other reasons. And even in that case, the parent company is based in China. So that's all that matters. It doesn't matter that TikTok U.S. is doing its IPO in the U.S. It's still a Chinese company from China's perspective. And thus, you now need approval to list outside of China. And well, I got it. You have to admit the speed with which they address these so, things. <laughs> yeah. The question us. there, Tyler. Yeah. The question there, Tyler, is, and I'm quite confident there's a couple of them that have already done that, and how they're going to address that. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident. I've seen a number of them. Cal, maybe you can comment on this a little bit. Um, but I'm sure there's a number of them that already have units that are listed in the United States. And it might not be tech, it might be different industries, but as always, China can link them back to data. So, um, so, on, so the only, sorry, the only comment ahead, I'll Kyle. make is yesterday, a, num the, uh, the, a, a lot of Chinese stock, uh, sorry, a lot of these companies have taken a hit, right? Like in the last couple of days. Like, so the markets are discounting the fact that they'll be able to get around it. Yeah. So the there's a couple of other Number six and number seven and number eight biggest headlines of the day are actually worth discussing in this case. The, um, mm, mm, mm. oh, by the way, another update today since we met last time is that Didi's main app 
has been removed from in in China. Their Tencent is a super huge uh, tech company, one of the very biggest. Think Facebook. They have WeChat is their flagship app. In the same way that Facebook has the Facebook app, and they also have Instagram, and they also have WhatsApp. WeChat was born as a chat app, but became much, 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 much more. It became almost its own app store. I mean, it has so many functions and features and services and products inside of WeChat that it's called a super app because it's like a Swiss army knife. It does everything. And so DD does live on its own as an independent app in China, but it also exists inside of WeChat because WeChat is a Swiss army knife. And one of the tools inside of WeChat is DD. And that it's, that's where it's very commonly used, actually. And so now DD has been removed from WeChat and Ant Group's Alipay, which are two of these super apps in China, have now also no doubt been forced to remove DD by the government because they wouldn't both simultaneously on the same day agree to do that unless they were being forced to do that. So, nor would they want to do that uh, necessarily because the users of their apps would uh, of course want to and what that's doing that alone right there for um, people in china understands how how much of an impact that's going to have on dd's business like that's going to like cut dd's business like down to a stub like that's going to remove half of the calls that get you know of people using dd so i would say dd's worth half as much today as it was yesterday but uh, i don't think the markets understand that yet so there's a potential information arbitrage to be had there because, um, yeah, your average person outside of China doesn't understand how commonly DD is used within WeChat and, and Alipay as a, you know, how how the rides actually get booked. So, Tyler, yes. on, on DD, there was also um, an article on BBC about 45 minutes ago that says that you American shareholders are not suing DD for not disclosing into his um, no IPO they prospectus. Are. You better, yeah. you damn you well better. Well, hey, one, what America, uh, you know, if there's one thing we do well, it's sue people. And as, as uh, Donald Trump knows, <laughs> just look at the big, look at the yeah. second biggest article of the day. Um, yeah, we love suing people. Uh, we are so crazy. And of course, if somebody lost some money uh, investing in Didi, uh, they're going to sue. And so that's just the, the nature of the American beast. So, yeah, of course, they're going to sue. Of course, there was people who uh, participated in the Didi IPO and they might have a case because Didi apparently updated some of the data in their S1 filing even after the horse had bolted out of the barn and at that point it's a little too late and you definitely do expose yourself to potential litigation because you kind of have to be super transparent and upfront with everybody about everything in that filing because that's what they're investing is is what that filing says and if that filing doesn't match the reality if you didn't reveal if it turns out that you said oh you know, you didn't warn people that you might get shut down in China and you actually turns out you actually knew you might. And they can point prove. to note, Tyler. Huh? Point to note. Point to note. They may very well have warned. And yet the American shareholders might be distancing themselves from that 
because now DD doesn't have an option. They can't come out and say we had actually warned in advance and told them that this might be happening because then it would completely, it would make the entire IPO illegitimate. It would make the entire shareholding of the original shareholders completely illegitimate. DD would be in far more trouble and even be possibly delisted and the entire IPO would go to crap, which would make this stock price go to literally zero in one day. So this might be a lawsuit based on a philosophical move. So there you go. That's another yeah. story. I haven't read the I'm article. Curious to see, I'm yeah. curious to see if the trend is going to continue with Huawei and other companies. Well, there's know? a there's a hearing in on July 21st for Huawei with regard to somebody asked yesterday what happened with their CFO that was being kind of held um detained in Canada and was being extradited and whatnot and that case is happening. I don't know. I'm somebody looked it up. Uh, I'm confusing two different cases. Um that's me. That's me. The yeah. next hearing is in August. August, right. It's the Johnny Depp's wife case that's happening in July. Sorry, I confused those two. Um, don't ask me why. I... Tyler, on the on the yeah. DD, I, I don't know. It's worth a couple of couple of minutes or just a minute to. Uh-huh. Uh, I think you we pieced together the the question that we had, right? Just to for the new audience today, we haven't been here last two or three days. Um, but uh, if if you want to do it, I'm happy to just a quick. Uh, we had a. Um, you know, we we were asking the question here, right? Like about a week, you know, when it first uh, kind of blew up. Why would the Chinese uh, government let, uh, you know, why would DD IPO knowing the whole like uh, sense of the Chinese government? Why would they not stop the IPO like they did with Alibaba or right. you know anyone else? And so we kind of unpiece that. Do you want to just give everyone a quick update on that? Because there are a couple of hypotheses on that, and uh, you know, clearly on the investor pressure, right? The, and then also the the kind of uh, uh, the, the the management team of what, what we figured out itself. Yeah. The, yeah yeah the, the conspiracy theory bit. sure yeah. so here yeah. just for people who this is uh, again something we can only discuss in tech news around the world which I, you're not going to hear this on CNBC anytime soon but you'll probably it'll probably take months to you know all of the back channeling um, you know rumor slash uh, I have a friend who actually knows what happened and how the, all this plays out. But here's a theory. Here's a potential theory that the these people at Didi are incredibly pol- politically well-informed individuals, right? Worked at the 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 lady who was running Didi worked at Goldman Sachs, and her dad is one of the biggest is considered one of the pioneers of the internet in China. Right. Wildly connected. These are not outsiders. These are not kids uh, that don't know what they're doing at all, at all, at all, at all. They know exactly what they're doing. Precisely what they're doing. And their biggest investors like Masayoshi son from SoftBank, he knows exactly what he's doing. And SoftBank is a really interesting figure in this because as one of the biggest investors, and SoftBank was also one of the biggest investors in Alibaba. And Alibaba happened to have found themselves in a very similar situation back in January-ish, January, February, where Alibaba, actually their sister company and financial, same CEO, Jack Ma, SoftBank's leader, Masa, 
is best friends for life, BFFs, with Jack Ma, the leader of Alibaba and, and Financial. They are literally like brothers. They really have, and this has been for decades, by the way. So, um, and you can find videos of them referring to each other as, you know, brothers and lifelong lovers. I mean, they are just like all, they're literally, have the biggest man crush of any two individuals I've ever seen. They literally love each other. And, well, they made, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars together. Anyway, from the er, from the very beginning um, of when Alibaba was just starting. So they've been incredibly close for a very long time. And then Jack Ma's the, the rock star of China. Masa's the rock star of Japan. And... Alibaba gets, you know, becomes the like the Amazon of China. And then they build up a fintech company and financial. And that becomes like the, the biggest fintech in China and, and in fact the world. And then Ant Financial is about to IPO. And then the state of China says, no, you're not going to IPO, Jack. Say what? Sorry, no IPO for you. Huh? Yeah, you just need to go sit in the corner and do finger painting for a while and let <laughs> let Uncle G run the show. Okay. So Jack Ma goes, starts doing finger painting. Very literally, that's what he does now. The reports are he's doing lots of painting, figure painting. That's what he does with his time these days. You know, the biggest entrepreneur the world's ever seen. Yeah, he's doing finger painting because that's what you do as the world's biggest entrepreneur, you know. You can imagine Elon Musk all of a sudden being told, hey, no more rockets for you. No more cars for you. Go finger paint, Elon. <laughs> Go f and, and he does. And the headlines are Elon Musk's doing lots of finger painting these days. That's what happened in China. <laughs> Taking a well-deserved rest. Yes. From, from transforming the universe. You know Elon. He's a finger painter. That's what he's always really wanted to do. Same with Jack Ma. Jack Ma is even more charismatic, more flamboyant, more entrepreneurial than Elon Musk, if that's even conceivably possible. But it is. And now he's the finger painter. And a damn good finger painter, I must say. I'll bet he's amazing. I want to buy some of those NFTs. I would love some of those NFTs. So oh, Maybe he's really selling it over NFT through Alipay. <laughs> so he's very busy these days doing lots of beautiful finger paintings for his friends and his family. So when, now that happened, and of course, uh, Jack and his friend Masa are scratching their heads. And then, and the whole world was scratching their heads that this Ant Financial IPO got kiboshed, 86th, deep sixth. And then this new DD IPO comes up, and guess who the biggest investor is? Masa. Right? And guess who also is has some deep ties to this, Jack Ma. And guess what happens to this DD IPO? The state comes in just uh, days before the IPO and says, you know what, guys? I think you should call off this IPO. And so what does DD do? Do you think they went home and started finger painting? Fuck no. They're like, run, run, let's run. Let's run to the IPO. It's a New York IPO. Get in the car. Let's go, baby. Go, baby. Run. Go, 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 go. They're chasing us. Let's do this. And you've got Masa and Jack. No doubt there was a meeting between, again, don't forget, the DD leadership know exactly what they're doing. These are incredibly connected, incredibly intelligent, incredibly informed individuals. 
They saw what happened to Jack. They see they got Jack's finger paints in the mail. They've got his little finger paintings in their office on their desks. And now they're being told to do what Jack did. And so the question is, are they going to finger paint or are they going to make a run for it and try and jump over the bridge before the drawbridge is fully lifted? And, you know, like the Dukes of Hazard with their car, boom, like jump over the bridge, you know, <laughs> as as the drawbridge is lifting. Are they going to like step on the gas and jump over the lake, you know, midair, wheels spinning in the air? <laughs> That's such an American reference, Gen X reference. Sorry, if you don't know what the Dukes of Hazards is, uh, usually at some point in every episode, there's a drawbridge that gets lifted and the car has to figure out if they're going to leave the county because the police are coming. They just robbed a bank and they got to figure out if they're going to jump over the, you know, the drawbridge. Uh, you know, it's that split second decision. And every time they gas it to the floor and the car takes off and they jump over and, you know, goes into slow-mo as it, you know, yeah. And the car makes a sound every time as it goes over the bridge. <laughs> anyway, it's a very American <laughs> reference. So, you guys. Anyway, so the DD team with Masa, with Jack are like, fuck it, go for it. We've got enough finger paints already. And now they make it to the New York Stock Exchange. They list, they IPO. And next thing you know, China starts. Oh, and by the way, the car lands right on the 100th anniversary of the CCP. While, while they're a bit busy with their birthday party. And, but the very next day, the, the China authorities come cracking, cracking knuckles. They're ready to bust some balls. You you guys jumped the drawbridge, but we're, we, we're here. We came in our helicopter. We got you. And now they're cracking down. And the first thing was is they stopped all new registrations of the app of Didi. And then they removed the apps from the app stores, Google and Apple. And then today they're removing them from Alipay and uh, WhatsApp. So they're removing all of the apps from anyone being able no, to WeChat use it. Pay. No, WhatsApp. WeChat. What, WeChat. So I always confuse WhatsApp and WeChat. Because they have the same logo as a green app. It's, it's, they should have done a better job of making their apps different colors and different names. Anyway, um, WeChat. So they remove it from WeChat and Alipay and Google and Apple and stop all new registration. Then China's just trying to sabotage DD in the days after their IPO because we told you don't do it. Although, you know, well, why? Why can't we do it? Why not? So. They did it. And they also gave, created stock options for the senior leader, executive leadership to the tune of originally $4 billion, but at current DD valuations, it's like $3 billion, which potentially gave them a way to get their money out in the middle of the night. We're not sure because based on the vesting schedule, uh, although that will be known in, in time. And that whole drama that we just described, which I have to say is plausible uh, will likely become uh, a Netflix series of some sort on some streaming app. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Um, yeah. And uh, just uh, one addition that just, uh, and this is my hypothesis just based on that. So I'm feeling a little more satisfied with that question really. Cause um, so investors get paid off, right? Clearly uh, Western investors, but also, Chinese investors, right? And the management team is very connected to 
various people in China, I assume, because otherwise it wouldn't be running this company, getting it to where it is, particularly the president. And we've researched that yesterday uh, in terms of her connection. I think it came out last couple of days. Her, 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 her father is an important figure. I think Kai brought that up yep. uh, in, in, in uh, Chinese politics, uh, all the way to the absolute senior people. So in did Chinese David, leadership. by the way. Yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, and so uh, I, I uh, so I imagine that uh, uh, you know there were some uh, investors and in, you know that were you know uh, involved in in China, and so they get a bit of a payoff as well. So a little bit of a win-win, and then the Chinese government gets to use it as a as an absolute uh, you know signal for every other company, and uh, and you know coming out of the hundredth year anniversary, the momentum just continues in the tone that. Uh, you know, was set, uh, I imagine. So that's kind of where I am in my head. But it's an amazing thing that we've unpicked over last over the last three or four days um, here. And I just, uh, I, I think, I think, uh, yeah, as you said, it's going to probably be a movie, and uh, um, and we should actually look forward to watching it. Yeah, I can't wait yeah, for that. And one, one more thing, mm-hmm. one more thing. I think the sudden drop of this stock option to all those executive could be a settlement fee in Chinese. You call it anjiafei because they know that definitely they'll be implicated if they're listed. Okay. It's called Anjiafei. I think David will know this well. It's uh, basically family settlement fee. Oh, <laughs> God bless yes, you, Todd. Yes. Hold on. So Todd found, Todd McLeese found uh, a video of the Dukes of Hazard of Cletus and Boss Hogg which, <laughs> uh, chasing the Duke boys in the police car which happens in every episode. If somebody can please get the sh- a little video of the General Lee jumping over the drawbridge, that would be perfect. Um, so anyways, it's uh, you can... S- <laughs> I'm cracking up laughing. I, he found it on Twitter and I'm just retweeting it. <laughs> oh, funny. Uh, anyways, um, thank you for that, Todd. The, the other uh, interesting headlines before we get into all of the actual more interesting... Uh, tweets that people are sending in from all over the world is that the um, about the speaking of IPOs, the Robinhood IPO. Oh, and by the way, one last little headline, uh, and we mentioned it briefly, but but now Bloomberg reporting that down $831 billion, China tech firm sell-off may be far from over selling. And, and by the way, I mean, DD might go to fucking zero. So yeah, it's, there's potential downside left. To, to, there's, more, there's more juice left in that lemon. There's more water to squeeze out of that rag, very likely. So, um, but... Speaking of IPOs, we also have this Robinhood IPO coming up. And this also might be a problematic. Not that we wish Robinhood, I certainly don't wish Robinhood any ill uh, will, especially as my buddy Jason is uh, one of their angel investors. But Robin, so just in the sake of transparency, um, Robinhood's IPO filing shows that 81% of their Q1 revenue came from payment for order flow and often scrutinized practice that could, and here's the important part, uh, the this revenue of payment for order flow, Robinhood makes its money in a kind of unique way. There, it used to be that these apps, you know, that uh, where you buy stocks uh, would make their money on each transaction. Like they would charge you some five, six, seven dollars for each transaction. That's how they made paid their fees and made their money. Robinhood 
you know, popularized, didn't pioneer, but popularized this way of buying stocks without any fees at all, which opened up a whole new category of young users, you know, to, you know, use Robinhood. And they make their money by what's called um, payment for order flow, where they basically sell the data of all of the orders to these bigger entities who can, you know, utilize that data. And it turns out that 81% of Robinhood's revenue comes from that payment for order flow of selling the data, essentially. Now, because that's a very scrutinized practice, it could also potentially be banned by the SEC, and that would essentially remove 81% of Robinhood's revenues if it were to become banned. So that's certainly something to keep in mind um, in the back of one's mind as a potential risk uh, with regard to Robinhood's IPO, that a large part of their value might get um, taken out. So uh, other two other little quick ones that uh, Facebook, oh, this is wild. I'm gonna, I'll save the punchline for the end. Um, Comscore claims that most U.S. iOS and Android users, which is, that's, that's pretty much every American, you're either an iOS user or an Android user, U.S. Apple and Android users stick with pre-installed apps, meaning the, the clock app that you use is probably the Apple app. The mail app that you use on Apple is probably the Apple app as well. The podcasting app, the, like I said, the mail app, the calendar app, you're probably statistically using the, the weather app right? It's likely to be the app that's installed on the phone when you bought it, which is Apple's own app. Same in Google Android. You're probably using the default Android um, apps that come with the app rather than adding new apps that replace those. So this is the revelation of a Comscore uh, study that was just released. Now, who do you think, and by the way, in doing that, it's showing, it's making the case that Apple in uh, Google have monopolies inside of their apps, inside of their ecosystems, inside of their operating systems, that because they have all of these pre-installed apps and most people stay with the pre-installed apps, well, then don't don't they have a bit of a monopoly and controlling? You know, it's not really a true democracy or meritocracy of apps in these operating systems. You as a weather app don't have a fair fight competing against Google's pre-installed weather app or Apple's pre-installed weather app. That's the that's the outcome of a study by Comscore that claims that most US iOS and Android users stick with the pre-installed apps. Now, why would Comscore Comscore do such a study right now? Which reveals essentially that Apple and Google have indeed kind of unfair monopolies within their app ecosystems. And who commissioned the study? Who paid for the study? Well, it was just revealed that the the the, the individuals, the, the 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 folks who paid for this study is none other than Facebook. <laughs> because Facebook hates Apple and Google right now. And why does Facebook hate Apple and Google right now? Because Apple and Google are keeping all of their juicy, juicy data. 
and all their cookies that Facebook was previously built their business on, Apple and Google say, no more cookies for you, Mark. No more data for you, Facebook. We're keeping all that juicy, juicy, sweet, sweet data for ourselves. Thank you very much. And now you know why. Mark paid Comscore to make a study to show that these apps are monopolies. Because he's vicious. This is what Mark is, has been known from day one to do. When you get into a battle with Facebook, he's going to come out guns blazing. So now we know why. Facebook commissioned a study by Comscore to show that Apple and Android are monopolies right at the moment that they're being grilled by the U.S. and governments everywhere. By the way, let's recall the EU, the UK, Italy, Japan, Spain, and Canada, all within two weeks, all magically deciding to start cracking down on Apple and Google as monopolies. And I think we now know who is whispering in their ears simultaneously to crack down on them. I think we just figured out the amazing coincidence that all of these countries all simultaneously all got the idea to start cracking down on Apple and Google. Tyler, yes. did Facebook just get a big win, though, right? Uh, yes, they did. The US, but they're still interesting with a new FCC chairman. Right? The FTC uh, case was just uh, temporarily thrown out. They can bring it back, but it doesn't look good. They're going to have to, as Amy Klobuchar says, we're going to have to rewrite the laws because as the, as the laws are currently written, you're not going to get Facebook on a monopoly charge. Or on, yeah, you're going to have to go back and rewrite new laws that have new words to bring the case in a way that would make them appear to be a monopoly. Because the way the, the laws are written now, they're not a monopoly. So, um, and that's the government admitting that themselves. They understand why they lost that suit, and it, it wasn't even close. So, but now we now that Facebook is not really worried about being called a monopoly. Uh, but Google and Apple are, and boy, is Facebook uh, bringing the receipts because they just commissioned a report that shows that they are. And Mark Zuckerberg is a gangster. That dude, you do not want to fuck with that dude because he's going to come guns blazing if you start fucking with his game. As is well known in Silicon Valley. And now people are starting to realize how much of a gangster Mark is. You don't come fucking with his little Facebook. He will fuck, <laughs> he will come fucking right back with you. As everybody all every notable founder in Silicon Valley all could have told you already. Anyway, seeing him like walk down the road and I thought it was like a baseball cap on back to front with the music in the background. Did you not Mark. see him riding on oh, his hydrofoil oh, with the American flag? <laughs> <laughs> He's a gangster. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I was hoping someone else saw it. <laughs> oh, man. So uh, and now here's one, two more headlines here. The analysis of the global venture funding. This is how many investors are investing in startups, okay? Globally, is tech getting more funding or not? Are startups getting more funding or not? We've got the data. Here's the data. Analysis of global venture funding for the first half of 2021, which just ended eight days ago. 
is that uh, $288 billion invested, an all-time high, and up from uh, $110 billion uh, for the second half of 2020. So almost, not quite, two. it's about 2.5x more than the last six months. That's a huge increase. That is a phenomenal, um, incredible increase. On European tech, it's they've raised uh, seventy-four billion in the first half, um, compared with a hundred and eight billion for all of twenty twenty. So we're already uh, well ahead of uh, to break the record of last year. If at this current rate, it will be a hundred and fifty billion for twenty twenty-one versus a hundred and eight billion last year. So a 50% increase from last year. So, and then India also, Indian startups raised a record of about 10 billion so far this year in the first six months, compared with 4 billion in the first half of last year. So they're also up 150% this year over last year. So these are tremendous, tech is booming in terms of investment right now. In 2021, the first six months of 2021, absolute smashing, unprecedented record levels of investment globally, Europe and India, very notably. Yes, go ahead, uh, Lale. And these these include SPACs too, right? Includes what? SPAC. No, this. No, is, I don't think it does. It doesn't. No. It's a good question. I'll check it, but I don't think it does. This is ven- no, venture. Because this year has been extremely. Uh, more than before, so that's why I was asking. This wouldn't include SPACs. And Good in, to know. Thank in, you. And then Ben Thompson from Stratechery uh, decided to jump into Instagram's shift away from being a photo sharing app. Fits. Uh, he's he's pontificating. He's got an idea. He's a blogger. He's a tech blogger, and and usually makes some really interesting points uh, with the development of tech. And he just did a, a blog post about Instagram's evolution. Last week, head of Instagram posted a video on Instagram about Instagram where he says they're changing to video. And then Ben uh, essentially is saying that he's talking about uh, Instagram's evolution from being a photo sharing app fits with its broader continuous evolution from a photo filtering tool to a network to stories and beyond. And the question is, uh, does he talk about the real reason why they're doing it? Um, he he kind of does, um, but not really. He, the, the real reason that you and I know, because we've got a lot of Asian people here on stage, like my, you know people who live in Asia, like myself and Lakeisha, uh, among many others, we know goddamn what well, David knows most of all why Instagram is moving to video. And I can even predict with 100% certainty they're going to move to live stream video because that's where the money is. It's called social commerce. And that's where Ben, as an American who doesn't live in China, um, might not know that yet. And that's okay. Um, but that's what's going to actually happen. Uh, but he's talking about Instagram's evolution and um, 
but you already know what Instagram's evolution is going to be much more than your coworkers or even other tech bloggers know at this point because uh, of the, like the home and shopping I'll... network on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, and also Tyler uh, uh, identification and verification. Yeah. So we are all just a little way too informed here at Tech News Around the World because we have this tr tremendous, innovative new format that allows us to harness the brain trust of all these beautiful minds on stage. And in this particular case of the future of Instagram, it's, you know, David and Lakeisha and in some part myself, because we are living in a part of, and Jay, very notably on stage, works at one of these fantastic Asian, you know, unicorn companies that are fundamentally changing the game. And his company is the delivery network that allows you to get the stuff you're going to buy, you know, from these live streaming Instagrams of the future, which are already happening in Asia. His company actually brings you your stuff once you click buy. So we're all way too familiar with how this game is playing out. And it, it's so incredibly financially lucrative that it's, it's an absolute certainty that the Americans are going to copy what's happening in Asia because it's it's a free trillion dollar pot of gold. Uh, if one thing's for sure, they know how to see a trillion dollar opportunity and you can bet anything you want that they're going to jump all over that like, you know, white on rice. And so that's why we know what they're going to do in the future. Instagram's going to do what's already making a trillion dollars in Asia, they're going to switch to video as they announced. And we can accurately predict they're also going to switch to live video because that's what happened in China. And that's where the money is. And that's where they want to go. They're not making video for you so that you can have a get more followers They're They didn't build Instagram so that you can get an ego boost. They built Instagram to make money. And it's very obvious how they're going to make the most money is by copying what's already making the most money in Asia. So, uh, anyhow, Tyler, a free free piece of advice from tech news around the world to yeah. all the all the global headhunters, Egon Zendler, etc. Uh, just accelerate, like hire the Asian um, leadership or Asian people that have experience from Asia on retail and put them in the U.S. companies, you, you, you'll make it a lot easier for yourselves. Um, and, you know, sometimes they make it so complicated and they try and hire these people and they don't hire the diversity and different things. Just if you see these trends as you see them here, you, you just need that lens, like hire Lakeisha to run like, you know, a, a big division of a, of a U.S. retail company or even the U.S. retail company. You're more likely to succeed in the U.S. You know, some of these things are obvious to us on this platform because we're listening to people around the world so intuitively but people don't do this tyler they just sit there and try and reinvent the wheel right and then it's too late oh boy todd found it he found the general lee the 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 dukes of hazard <laughs> jumping over the lake <laughs> understand how much of a cultural icon the Dukes of and they were rednecks right I mean so Completely. as an African-American and black girl growing up in the United States I was I was humming the General Lee who was a confederate soldier I mean that their, the name of their car was yeah the General Lee Lakeisha you weren't the only black person doing that too I mean come on you, I mean who didn't like the car it would fucking jump and you're like damn <laughs> the, the best part of all of this is you know, if you look at Todd's profile, you know, and the brain power behind it, how much time he spent looking for that. I mean, it's just 
fantastic how this room it we could have been looking for something like uh to solve some huge problem or anything <laughs> else you know but uh we, that's the flow of this room it's just fantastically organic yeah so for those who don't know what we're talking about you have to go to the tech news twitter account because that's where the real action is happening while we're talking here there's a twitter account where we're sharing stuff and in this case todd found the the absolute amazing clip of the Dukes of Hazards jumping over the river, as I was describing <laughs> earlier. And uh, it brings back memories These that Lakeisha and I and LS, these are like absolute cherished childhood memories of watching this show where every episode... And, and there was nobody black on it, right? Just, just no, no, no. In I, fact, to their point, this is the deep south. <laughs> the deep. These are the most redneck, yeah. deep south you know, characters of any show that have ever were ever on TV, right? Like, there's nothing even close. And, and they were running moonshine. So, oh, you totally. know, alcohol that was prohibited, and they were always trying to get over the county line before the sheriff, Boss, Boss Hog, would catch them. Yeah, the, the Roscoe Pico train. Roscoe Pico train <laughs> and Boss Hog and Cletus. And the, yeah. Str- straight up, straight up criminals. I mean, they was just always running. <laughs> So anyway, it was this family of these redneck Americans who were, you know, in doing a moonshine operation and they had this sports car, you know, that could go faster than any car in the county. And that was their secret weapon to escape from the police in every episode. They would do something wrong. The police would figure it out. And then Boss Hogg, who's this huge, you know, character of like a a job of the hut like character. Uh, also one of the most redneck stereotypical characters in all of TV history um, as the, as the, as like the governor of the County would work together. He, with... wrote a, he wrote around in a white Cadillac. Yeah. And this huge and, white and, Cadillac. And let's not forget the popular term Daisy Duke for yes. short shorts comes from, yes. <laughs> from Daisy Duke. That's right. So the, the sister it's these two brothers, the, the Duke boys, and they have a sister named Daisy Duke and there's Luke Duke. And Daisy Duke, Daisy's the sister, and Daisy wore these really short shorts that are became so popular that they are now known, I think, globally as Daisy Dukes because she herself was the, what popularized them. These these short shorts are called Daisy Dukes. We still today in America call them Daisy Dukes because she was the one who popularized them. But that tells you how popular and influential this show was. And if you go to the Tech News Twitter account, and you, which is TNATW, you can see it on my photo here in Clubhouse, you will see an actual video of the General Lee, the sports car, jumping over the river as they escape Boss Hog and uh, Roscoe P. Coltrane, the, the sheriff of the police, are clearly in pursuit of uh, the Duke boys as they jump over this river. So thank you, Todd, for finding this uh, amazing video. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we also share the other articles that we talk about um, in real time about Apple and Google crowding out competition on their phones and all all of these articles, we share them in real time to the Tech News Twitter account. And that's why everything we discuss here on stage gets shared on the Twitter account. So you definitely do want to follow the Twitter account, like the Robinhood uh, IPO issues, all of these articles we discuss, you can read and share them yourself. So again, thanks to Todd. So now the other issue I wanted to bring up is that... um, is there another juicy article? Oh, this one's just b- breaking right now. So we can go ahead and, and uh, break a little news on this one happening right now. 
So you'll remember yesterday, we talked about the fact that Visa, the credit card payment gateway, had done a really interesting announcement about enabling buy now, pay later in a partner in Canada, in a partnership with Scotiabank, which would allow merchants to offer um, buy now, pay later options to their buyers in their stores, even in physical stores. And the merchant has the option to reveal which of the, you know, buy now, pay later options they want to reveal to the customer. And this was all a partnership between Scotiabank and Visa. And that's all great and kind of impressive that Visa was enabling this kind of opportunity for merchants and and buyers to make um, tiered payments. So Visa's back in the headlines again today with a whole other super impressive headline, which is this just broke just now. Visa partnering with more than 50 crypto firms, including Coinbase, which is the biggest, to allow users to convert and spend crypto. Says that $1 billion was spent via crypto-linked Visa cards and H1s. And this means potentially, if I understand correctly, we got to read the article, that Visa is going to enable people to spend their Coinbase crypto holdings through their Visa cards. And that is would be truly innovative and disruptive and fantastic, just like doing the buy now, pay later, but this may be even more so. So the headline says, uh, again, uh, Visa is partnering with over 50 crypto companies to allow clients of those crypto companies to spend and convert their digital currencies and use their Visa cards to spend their crypto holdings on those platforms. That's fucking fantastic. Aaron, you, you must have a thought on this. This is kind of in your wheelhouse. Having worked at MasterCard and such, Aaron's Aaron's in in standby mode. Visa is partnering with it. This, oh. this means clients can buy from any merchant accepting Visa, even those who do not accept crypto. Holy shit, that's huge! This is really big news. This should make uh, Bitcoin go up significantly. More than $1 billion was spent on crypto-linked Visa cards in the first half of 2021, even though there are very few, all except for Coinbase's own card and a couple others. Visa on Wednesday announced that it is partnering with these companies, including Coinbase, to allow clients to spend and convert digital currencies through its card program. The partnership will take will make it easy for clients to convert and spend digital currencies at 70 million merchants worldwide. That's a lot of merchants, 70 million. That's everybody. That means if you have crypto on Coinbase or 50 other, which is all of them, basically anyone who has Bitcoin or cryptos stored anywhere, you'll now be able to spend them anywhere through Visa. That's huge. And and, and Tyler, just yeah. to add one point, it's a little loud where I'm at. Um, I think also this is inclined to the, um, there's going to be some new legislation about taxes on on crypto assets, which will be bent yeah. even more in but the just, U.S. So let me let me explain. This essentially turns your Bitcoin into a currency is what this does. It allows you to spend your Bitcoin as if it's a currency. So the merchants, here's the quote from Visa. The merchants, meaning the store that you're buying the stuff from, don't have to change anything. So they do nothing. They they are not even aware of what's happening. Uh, Visa's head of cryptocurrency told uh, it will be the same as any other Visa transaction to them. But on the back end, the crypto assets are instantly converted into fiat, obviously. And the question is, at what rate? 
So Visa, this could be a huge financial boom for Visa because Visa could be charging so, you. So, I mean, here's the question. Yes. If it's not an actual FX type transaction, aren't they the buyer of the crypto then? Visa is, yeah. So yeah, like they're they're, they're, buying, well, they're, Visa, they're gonna Visa hold them. Yeah, Visa can accumulate the. Sorry, LS, did you want to say something? Yeah, I was just gonna say this is a, this is tripping me out because I think it's dispersed spending. Because the if you're gonna hold crypto in the past, you're going to get hit with a lot of taxes that are coming, especially in the U.S. So this stimulates sp spending because if it's on your Visa card as a credit as a fiat, you're going to spend it at some point. Right, because now it's easy to spend. Before you were holding it, not having a lot of places to spend Bitcoin. Bitcoin holders for years have been wondering, ah, where can I spend this stuff? Oh, you're a pizza person that actually accepts Bitcoin? Great, I will buy pizza. And in fact, Tesla, arguably, when they made their announcement that we accept Bitcoin, they did that knowing that a lot of people have a lot of Bitcoin, that they don't have a lot of places to spend, and we're giving you a place to spend it, buy a Tesla. And a lot of people did. And there, historically, there's not been a lot of places to spend Bitcoin. Oh boy, has that been solved. Now you can spend it anywhere that accepts Visa cards. Well, guess what? That's everywhere. You this has big implications for how it's categorized because at the moment, obviously, it's a, it's a property and it's, um, it's taxed in that frame of reference. So it'd be interesting to see how that uh, sort of tax side of it plays I'm, out. If hold, it on. Is hold on, hold on, hold on. I got a Bitcoin has to be spiking for for the next three days over this this is a huge deal this we, is we huge. were listening at, at the at the bitcoin conference in miami there were many companies that were aggressively positioning themselves to have the liquidity to allow you to onboard and offboard just so you can use their card which was one was called bitpaid you use their visa style card or your phone and they can make the transaction for you for the cryptocurrency into fiat and back and forth visa just killed all those companies you know what's crazy one. I'm looking they at they just did the buy now buy uh buy now pay later too, right, Tyler? Like yeah. yesterday? Yeah. Well here's they're just they're on fire. Yeah. Bitcoin right now, if you look at the chart, which I'm looking at, and look at the one year view on Robinhood or whatever, that is a nasty looking chart. Like it might it's currently holding its previous support level back in January, late January of around thirty two thousand. And it's been bouncing on that support point of 32,000. It's about to test what we call test the support point. It's coming down again to 32,000 from 33,000 as we speak. And meaning if it breaks below 32,000, it could very likely fall to 18,000. If it breaks. Yeah. When you look at the all time, it, that's where it's going on that trend. And you're right. right the one year trend is a it's definitely testing right now. It's testing the support point of 32,000 again right now. If it breaks below 32,000, the next stop down is call it 19,000. So it will fall tremendous. And that's happening in the next 24 hours or 48 hours. And so I wonder if Visa timed this article to... You're going to get a whole. This is this has to cause Bitcoin to go up significantly, so it prevents it. Notice, from, notice a maze on the phone. <laughs> it, Hi, this, Tyler. This must stop uh, 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 Bitcoin from breaking below thirty-two thousand at at this test point. Yes, me Messi. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know. Um, I was in and out yesterday, but I did actually um, send uh, the news that Visa yesterday also said something about the CFO on uh, on CNBC that they are trying to create a cryptocurrency kind of uh, um, ecosystem because they mentioned that one billion worth of cryptocurrency was a uh, transaction was done on the Visa crypto linked Visa card um, in the first six months of 2021. So they are actually actively trying to create a, a system where they can actually um, foster that type of transaction. Uh, yesterday, so I just wanted to add that. But by the way, yeah, I, I think v- they also yeah, they also had mentioned in their latest earnings call that they were big on crypto and that they wanted to ensure that the the customers and the cardholders would be able to use their crypto and pay with their crypto. So I think they that they've not made up their mind overnight. They had already announced that. Hmm. So let's see what happens. But that's a that's a big headline. Uh, they're one step ahead of uh, Mastercard on this. Then, man, Visa. Let's get, yeah. Let's get Nicholas yeah. in tonight. Yeah, but um, and, and this is this is important too because isn't the yield curve inverting? So they really need to 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 start um, doing things with liquidity. Uh, I'm sorry, it's late. I don't know which direction. So, but I mean, it's uh, like like they have access to the Fed now, right? So you have someone that's going to buy this crypto um, and support the, the asset prices because that's the job of the Fed now, right? And so you now basically have, through Visa, um, uh, an intermediary to the Federal Reserve, and now you have asset price support via, via, via Visa. Oh, Chris, that's fascinating because if you think about it, wow, um, the Fed's going to come out with their coin at some point this year. They're going to test the waters in the summer with a paper in August. But that's intriguing if the U.S. came out with like a U.S. coin that's digital. That's a currency. And if Visa has already been in the Bitcoin space, it would be, be the natural acceptance or evolution to kind of have a digital dollar. That's a crypto coin from the Federal Reserve. I didn't get I didn't understand the connection between what Chris said and LS. If you don't, if you guys don't mind just making the connection for me, I didn't get it. Sorry. Oh, Chris was basically stating that I heard that the Federal Reserve, that Visa's tied to the Fed, the U.S. Federal Reserve now. Yeah, and- basically, like, you know, how fractional reserve banks are to make everybody bored is that, you know, when you make a deposit, they only have to hold a, a bank, a, a deposit bank only has to hold a certain percentage. And if it's 5%, what that means is they, you take the ratio and you invert it. And so if, it's a 5% reserve ratio. That means that it's that money essentially gets lent out about 20 times. So a $100 deposit becomes $2,000 in a fractional reserve system. And how you balance this is with your banks, your credit facilities, etc. that balance the risk to make the system not run away. And with crypto, you don't have this federal or, or, or large institution that will be the buyer of last reserve, they call it, whenever assets go south. When we had the 2008 crisis, um, the Fed was the buyer of all the bad mortgages because their job is to make sure that assets stay, um, don't deflate. Deflation is the enemy. As much as we're afraid of inflation, deflation is the big enemy. And so the Fed will do whatever it can 
to prevent deflation and how they do it is through banks, et cetera. And I'm sorry to make it boring, but that that's what I'm getting at. So Visa is a legit, you know, banking company now. And they're saying to people, well, we'll take your crypto and let you buy things with it. Well, someone's got to buy the customer's crypto, right? So unless it's a Visa selling it to someone else, Visa must be the buyer of the crypto. And they're getting federal, you know, reserve funds to, in order to facilitate this because they're buying an asset. It's just like you buying a bank, buying a mortgage. Yeah, but, but the federal government won't bail out uh, the crypto risk that Visa takes. Unless Aaron that's what here. you're saying. Well, sorry, can, I, can, I, can I just get that? Sorry, I understand. Um, just, can I just one last thing on that? What, are you saying the Federal Reserve would bail out the crypto risk clearly that Visa takes because Visa accumulates the crypto and at some point does its own, like, you know, offload it, keep it, takes its own, it's got its own balance sheet. Um, do you, are you saying the Fed would, would, would uh, bail out or, 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 or guarantee uh, bail out on that crypto asset if it plummeted to 18 or something? Like I, I think they're kind of, I think they're kind of saying, and I'm sorry, Shaheen, you're going to say something. Um, I think they're kind of indicating that, right? I mean, because... Okay, uh, got it. I see what you're yeah. saying. Okay, thank you. What I was going to say, Chris, is that the reserve requirements were reduced to zero uh, in March of 2020. And they have been getting reduced over time. I think there is a Basel III requirement for some financial institutions. But if you go to federalreserve.gov, they just have... It's like the first paragraph on reserve requirement. I'm reading it now. It says... As announced on March 15, 2020, the board reduced reserve requirement ratios to 0%. Effective March 26, 2020, this action eliminated reserve requirements for all depository institutions. Okay. Uh, uh, and there you go. Hold on. I want to see if Aaron's back because he is uh, an absolute authority on this topic. Well, I'm reading this website from Federal Reserve. I'm... Yeah. I believe it or not, Aaron will know more than they do. Go ahead, Aaron. So my question is like Visa is saying they are trying to make cryptocurrency more usable and more like any other currency. Right. And I'm just wondering how is that possible if, you know, uh, most countries are not really, um, you know, on board, including the U.S. So that 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 would be my next question. Well, and, and, and that was what I was going with, uh, Kyle, earlier Um is that I think you're going to see countries come out with their own digital currency and you're going to see a hybrid world of two. Right. So Bitcoin will always remain that way. Yeah, regardless correct. of which, they're not saying it's only for Bitcoin, for example. They're saying they will convert your cryptos, whatever they are. And by the way, Coinbase has said they're going to allow every crypto they can possibly allow. And it won't matter. Visa will convert them to U.S. dollars. For and, and as long as and as long as Uncle Sam can collect their tax on that asset, that that's why I'm saying that's the whole point of the Fed. And that's where I was saying they're indicating that because and, and Aaron, please correct me because I'm the I'm the rookie here. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, they're 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 an, implying it's an asset. Right. They're they're saying it's an asset. It's not a currency like. Uh, but now it's being that's treated whole, like a currency. That's a great point. Aaron? Yeah. And and so Visa is buying an asset and and you're getting taxed on an asset like a long term, you know, short term. So, so Chris, I I think I I hear you. I really do hear you. And I think you're probably giving Visa a little bit too much credit just yet. Um, So a bit of background. I'm I'm ex-MasterCard, worked on this since 2013. I'm also 
um, from an, a company that um, basically becomes a principal member of Visa. And what that means is Visa has a set number of issuing firms that it um, runs a big audit, big due diligence on, and it gives them what's called principal membership to authorize issuance of Visa-related um, vehicles. And those vehicles can be physical cards, digital cards, etc. And that's what you call that's what you call wallets, right? When these companies are like the Stripe, okay? So the likes of Coinbase many years ago called Contus, and it, it said, you know, can we, can you help us issue uh, effectively a crypto card? And we're like, yeah, like we're a fiat company. You handle all the exchange. All Visa are doing here is they're bypassing their original principal members and allowing the exchanges to go directly to Visa. So Visa won't be procuring in crypto. They're still remaining in fiat. They are regulated in fiat and they will stay in fiat. What they're doing Thank is you. they're permitting. That's all right. They're permitting. But, but don't get me wrong, Chris, where you're going and where LS was going with CBDC, see that that's possible. But you're talking many, many, many years away right now. This is a defensive strategy from Visa. And actually, they're not I mean, they're not actually ahead of Mastercard on this. Mastercard led this. But what they're doing is both Visa are ensuring that they cover their asses when it comes to blockchain stroke cryptocurrency spend. And they're not allowing the coin base of cryptocurrency exchanges of the world to get too far out of hand that they become their own entity. So by plugging themselves into this stream and allowing them to connect directly to these entities, they remain the, the plumbing of the exchange where people still have to spend in fiat today, the dollars, the pounds, the euros. They still have to spend in those today. And, and there's another point that I think people are trying to make on assets versus currency. And we should be very clear that it, like when we talk about digital currency, that's not necessarily the same as a digital asset. So there are two definitions. What we've got is we have an unregulated market that hasn't yet defined a digital asset nor a digital currency. I just want to add to that, that in the U.S., the situation is different than other countries. And the existence of stable coins that are pegged to the dollar in abundance make the requirement for a central bank digital currency a lot less uh, pronounced than it might be in other countries. So on that, Shaheen, the Bank of England wrote a big paper around uh, CBDCs and stable coins. And, and me at Fidelity, my role is to get heavily involved in that. So we're up at Capitol Hill all the time. And I'm, I'm really clued in to CBDCs and stable coins. What I will say is we can't muddy the water yet on stable coins, CBDC and digital currency because they're very, very different in that domain. What we can say is because they're pegged to a fiat currency. And remember, stable coin does not need to be pegged to a fiat currency. We've actually pegged one to Bitcoin just to see how it goes. So stable coin is about pegging something against what should be something more stable, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It's all software at the end of the day. So from that perspective, in the U.S., just because some of the USDC coins have been pegged against the U.S. dollar, the reason why uh, Visa can settle in USDC is because of the dollar pegging, the fiat pegging, not because they're procuring USDC. Thank you. I'm, I'm curious quickly, can you earn cash back on these transactions? Yes. So you can earn what's called crypto back as well, if you want. So I worked with a company called Wirex across Europe and Singapore, and they played the spread across the exchange. So what we said today about procuring cryptocurrency uh, and, and selling it to buy a coffee, for example, 
Um, whoever said it earlier on about, uh, I think it might have been Tyler or Carla, whoever said about levering the spread, it's not Visa that are doing that. It's actually the exchanges. So the Coinbase of the world, just because they ring fence 0.000001 of a Bitcoin to purchase your coffee or whatever the value might be, doesn't mean they actually have to sell it at the time. They can play the spread of the market and decide where they want to do. So they offer incentives like cash back or crypto back so that people will spend more in fiat and they'll leverage the actual spread across the cryptocurrencies. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I've, I've, posted, I've posted to the reply of, of the news item that was posted on the Twitter account um, a, an interview with, uh, with Visa that explains exactly what Aaron has just said and where they lay out their entire crypto strategy if everyone wants to do the deep dive. Thanks. Awesome and job, Sarah. Thanks very much. A, a couple of people are commenting about <laughs> the Dukes of Hazard <laughs> in the Twitter stream about how they used to jump inside the car go by going through the windows and stuff. I'm just, cra I'm just cracking me up. Um, so other interesting headlines uh, happening at the moment. Uh, and thank you to Aaron for that. Uh, oh, but before we get into the other juicy, juicy, uh, very interesting Cherry, the very best of the most interesting headlines from everywhere, which most people are not paying attention to. David, uh, did, I think you're back now. If you are able to comment about our earlier conversations around Didi and what's going on with um, China now making it difficult for their, the companies to list in the U.S. and all, all any, any thoughts on this whole topic? Yeah, so um, I'll sort of stick to talking points that are I think uh, readily available for everyone to look up on the internet, but perhaps not everyone has drawn the dots. So if you look at uh, um, Didi's uh, global president, um, I mean, the CEO founder is a, is a nobody, right? He's, he, he came up <laughs> with some idea and got people together. The, the, the person behind this that's, I guess, much more resourceful is Jane Liu. So Jane is the daughter of... Uh, uh, Lu Chuanzhi. So Lu Chuanzhi is the founder of Legend Lenovo Group, the company that makes now your IBM ThinkPad computers. So if you look at the background of this company, um, he <clears throat> essentially uh, started with very humble origins as well. And um, the person who actually helped him make the acquisition of uh, IBM ThinkPad computers is a woman named Mary Ma. Uh, Mary Ma was the personal English translator for both Deng Xiaoping and uh, Jiang Zemin, so the former paramount leaders of China. And then what's even more interesting about Mary Ma is after her stint at Legend de Lenovo, uh, she then joined TPG, one of the top five U.S. private equity funds, and became very resourceful with foreign LPs as well. And then after that, she joined and became the co-founder of Bou Capital. Bou Capital is the private equity fund founded by the grandson of Jiang Zemin. And together, they were able to raise money initially from both Li Kaohsiung and with SoftBank. So they were one of the largest pre-IPO investors into Alibaba in 2014, back in their U.S. listing uh, at that time. And obviously, they were considered um, one of the, uh, I suppose you would say, primary targets to, to go after in the ad 
IPO fiasco last year. Um, a lot of the holdings were either through proxies or nominees for that entire interest group. Um, the reason why the Liu family hasn't been touched so strongly is before their involvement with the Zhang camp, they were often seen as um, part of the Deng Xiaoping camp, who is almost immortalized in Chinese communist history, along with Mao Zedong. But the first uh, instance where people who are sort of part of the Den group that were um, knocked off their pedestal was when Ambang went down. So the founder and chairman of Ambang married the granddaughter of Deng Xiaoping, um, his third wife, actually. It's like so, some Games of Thrones shit going on over there. <clears throat> right. So when, when the Den family effectively were, uh, you know, obviously not directly, um, but indirectly sort of knocked down from a few pegs when uh, Ambong was taken out. Um, they were also given sort of an opportunity to save themselves from some embarrassment. So the granddaughter divorced uh, Wu Xiaohui, the chairman and founder of Ambong, right before his arrest. And then that was sort of the saving grace. But within um, closed circles in the party, obviously, um, it was the first time we've seen that these uh, old institutional families being challenged for the first time. Because remember, um, Ambong was so deeply embedded uh, within the communist institution that it wasn't only the Den family that was in there. Um, there's another individual in there called uh, Chen Xiaolu. His father is Chen Yi, who is one of the 10 immortal marshals um, that founded the nations. So it, it just shows how deeply rooted that entire system wow. of... Uh, vested interest is right and so this time around um i think you can see the lu family is losing a lot of their influence as well because the den family can be challenged and obviously uh, the Zhang family has been severely hurt uh since uh aunt uh, aunt's listing last year and then if you look at um jane lu's uh entire involvement with her father uh they've really been taken down several pegs so they, they started off their business with the success of both Zhang and Den's endorsement because they effectively own and operate a concessionary business of selling all of the computers to all of the government bureaucracies and schools and everywhere uh -huh. all across China. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, the father was sort of <laughs> forced. Through, oh, sorry. That was a very strong word. The, the father voluntarily retired from his post two years ago in 2019. Sure he did. <laughs> and then the the so so he has two children Jane and then a son called Liu Ling, um, and Liu Ling was not originally the idea was once the father retires Liu Ling would the son would take over the family position in the company, um, because Lenovo or Legend Group has this rule which is um, no company director's children can hold senior posts in the company. But mm. as the father has now retired, mm. neither father and son now ho holds a post within that company. Mm -hmm. So the the real controlling interest has really shifted behind that company as well. So let me, and then now we see Jane sort of losing her influence. Let me, uh, in the DBT let me you, you just gave me a crazy question, David. How, in, in, chronologically, when Alibaba's Alipay IPO got shut down, was it shortly thereafter that Didi decided or announced their ambitions to do an IPO in the U.S.? Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. 
Oh my God. You guys understand what that means? They needed to get their money out. And so why did they do an IPO in the US? Why not do it in China? Well, they wouldn't have got their money out. So they had to do it in the US. Because if they had tried to do the IPO in China, like Alibaba was doing, China would have said, nope, you're not IPOing. Your your money's not going nowhere. It's staying right here. And then they're doing... And the two underwriters and sponsor banks for the deal are Morgan Stanley and Goldman Goldman yeah, Sachs. Where she used to work. Um, well, actually, that was where Alvin used to work as well. So Alvin Jong, the um, grandson of Jong Zemin. So, um, so clearly, soon, very as soon much... as their friend Jack Ma got shut down on his IPO and they realized, ah, shit, that hurt him a lot financially, like incredibly. Uh, we need to get the fuck out of here. Where's the exit door here? We got an IPO in the U.S., so that's why the timing of did they did that's why my question was did they decide ah we need to do a U.S. IPO what what do we do right now that Jack just got shut down and now all these big tech companies are not going to get we see what's coming because they're obviously super bright they know everything that's happening they can foresee what's about to happen all the big tech companies are going to get the shit beat out of them and then they said ah let's make a run for it and hence their the timing of their announcement to do the U.S. IPO was shortly after the Ant Financial IPO got shut down. And so they knew they were going to make a run for it. And it was just uh, even months ago. Uh, and then, you know, the, the China said, you know, don't do it. And they did it. So I, w- I guess, was China not able to stop them from doing this New York but IPO? That's the implied payoff. What I'm hearing David say, right, David, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there's an implied payoff to the to the vested interest, right, that 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 suited that suited the Chinese government, uh, because then everyone's paid off, in a sense, because then you get the loyalty from those people. I'm not saying this is what David said, but this is just an analysis. Oh, 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 <laughs> I was just so, about to say yes. your words, not mine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, my words, my um, words. No, no, um, no, but nothing, nothing to do with David, right? So I'm just saying, my, my. I see. That's my. Well, there's, analysis. there is so much. But how you're, 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 yeah, he's you're right. totally right. And, right. and part of this is going into the 20th Party Congress next year. Um, number one needs the leverage over um, both allies and foes, right? The minute, if you think about it, the minute if if I were someone in that position, the minute all of my assets have been cleared out of China and parked in a safe foreign jurisdiction, say the US. I, I no longer have anything to fear, right? I don't really give a shit about staying on after the 20th Party Congress. I just want to move my family and myself out. Um, so that- To create of, options for myself, right? And, exactly. and the entire system, yeah, is about creating options because That's you right. don't know That's where right. the wind's gonna blow. So anyway, this is my words, not David. I'm not, yeah. <laughs> so, so now that the, the American shareholders want to sue Didi and that we've established that some have been able to cash out their their participation into Didi, do they not run the risk that they're not going to be able to keep that cash out they've made? It doesn't matter. The, the minute they sell it, it's being it's being turned into other accounts overseas elsewhere. So what's what's China's strategic plan really? Like the what 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 is really really the end game here? Uh, I mean, doesn't it 
hurt their private sector in trying to squeeze all these uh, big tags, Chinese big tags, uh, by by going after them uh, for Nasty, the U.S. In, in some ways, it's a really good question, and and I would just very very quickly I say I think they're they're so this is where it's a, it's similar to the U.S. at a at a at a, at a higher level. Uh, tech companies have learned that they are able to collect data and effectively they've found themselves to become amazingly powerful like vehicles right in 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 human you know control manipulation etc i mean they and then make money off that and so they've learned that they're able to do that this is like this is amazing we can collect data and we to the thing we you know tyler's been talking about for like three months like in a in a thing so all these tech companies are in that place um but but in a sense and china's realized that and the us has realized that and india to some extent has realized that and uh, um and they're all trying to rein them in and they all have to do it their own way and china wins on china's speed right it's about, but i would just add one thing oh and david might just add on to this um, I think in China, though, it's about also family and loyalty of, of ties. So um, she's had some problems. He had problems with Bo's family before he ascended to, you know, president or leader or emperor. This goes back to 2012, 2013. And so you always have that in the political bureau where there's going to be issues and infighting and such. But it never it never comes out to the public like it does in the Western world. And it, ne- it never spills over. It's always done behind closed doors. And David can add to that. But I think... The, China's uniquely different than the Western worlds uh, and democracies of how they deal with this. And so the Meserich question or point is that they're going to create their own, in my opinion, local economy and those that are loyalists uh, to the, you know, the Communist Party and to what she and the vision of the next 10 to 20 years. But for me, it's just a logical shift, the logical shift of hard currencies to digital currencies and of, let's say, voter manipulation through mainstream media media now to social media and therefore government is coming in in nationalistic views on power, on staying in power financially and politically. And basically, therefore, it has to go through big tech companies. And that happens in many, many countries around the world, different scale, different methods, different cultures and different uh, ways of dealing with it. Uh, This is Shaheen. I'd like to add a comment. I think the technology companies in general have kind of emerged as like a fifth branch of government in many countries, and they're very powerful. And when you're talking about cryptocurrencies, then they're starting to encroach on sovereignty. And I believe countries around the world don't know how to react to that. And I think it is entirely possible that the reactions may very well just be a mistake so I don't think we should assume that whatever they're doing, they've got it right. They may very well have got it wrong. Okay. Good point. So other other big headline. Here's a Chinese headline that's truly fascinating that Poppy just found. I'm just retweeting it now to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. You can see it on my photo here in Clubhouse. <clears throat> and it's from BBC. Many others reporting it. China Midnight Patrol. Cracks down on young gamers. Chinese gaming giant Tencent is the biggest name in gaming, not only in China, but I would even say globally. And Tencent is rolling out facial recognition to stop children playing games between 11 p.m. and 8 a.m. So that the game you're playing now turns on your camera. And if you appear to be underage, 
the game will stop to comply with China not wanting children to play games past 10 p.m. It's called the Midnight Patrol. Technology will stop. Uh, tricks circumventing the government curfew with a cap on what young gamers could spend on in-game transactions. The bans require gamers to register with their official IDs linked to a national database. This whole game again, which they already do on all their live streaming apps, right? Where I, I, you've heard me say before, if you want to live stream in China, they need to register your face with facial recognition algorithms so that they can track you down and have a little chat with you if you say something they don't like. So if a person whose face isn't registered enters your live stream, your live stream will stop immediately algorithmically because an unknown face undetected by the algorithm has now entered the frame. And that person can say anything they want because we don't know who they are. And so stop the stream. They might say something we don't like. So stop, stop, end of stream, goodbye, blue screen of death. So the <clears throat> they're now doing the same for kids who want to play video games well, so that the facial recognition algorithms, which is sense time, by the way, can the camera will be on when you play a video game. And if you are playing past 10 p.m., the game will stop. Really interesting. Or if you're buying too much. So no games for you after 10 p.m. Does it say whether it's permanently on the camera? Uh, now, anyone playing for a certain length of time? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, this could get crazy. It says, according to the CNN article, anyone playing for a certain length of time will require a facial scan to prove they're an adult. Okay. But I'm also, because of this whole laying flat culture, it's not, it would now be trivial for them, the state, to be like, you know what? You've been playing too many video games. Why don't you go back to work now? <laughs> if you've been playing for five, I'm, gl I'm glad you went there Tyler because I was thinking the same exact thing five or six hours I think that's enough video games for you for today uh, you probably have other things you should be doing let's put up let's pause the video games for now um, so it's no longer screen also, time and myself controlling it's now the government controlling the yes but also on iOS actually this is a default uh, this is now an available um, setting for developers that they can introduce more parental controls so actually also control the uh, playtime of uh, children in certain games and it wasn't um, before it was iOS wide so we would control the app uh, the iOS software were, would control the app and now it's the powers to the, given to the developers so now they will be able to do this um, and set some a certain parental control so uh, the, the app would shut itself uh, on the user in the same fashion as you uh, mentioned, Tyler. Uh, but that's also iOS-wide, so you can do it um, almost everywhere. But there's no facial recognition. I think it just goes off the it's, time spent. Uh, the CNN article, the it says it will now cover more than 60 games from the world's biggest game company. The World Health Organization formally recognized gaming addiction in 2018 and the following year. But in China, video games have often been accused of having a negative impact on young people, including nearsightedness in children. And in a bid to tackle what China considers problem gaming, all new titles must be approved by a regulator, which in, uh, so no doubt they're going to require all new games to have this. And they're going to tell, no doubt, they can go back to all the game companies and say, you have to in include this facial recognition thing so we can make sure the kids aren't playing games 
after yeah, that's for sure. I mean, even today, publishing in China is very cumbersome and it takes forever to get a game published because everything goes through a manual review of the government. So most people, mostly, it, I mean, it takes months, sometimes years to get a game published that, you know, takes a day to be published in the American App Store, for instance. So the question becomes, if that does have a benefit to society, which it might, might any other country adopt a similar approach? By the way, one Americans will say, well, this is the responsibility of the parents. That, that would absolutely be the American approach to things. Uh, however, m many parents are not doing their jobs in, in this regard. And so perhaps, uh, although I guess the, the backup argument from an American perspective is, we'll just put, that's what Apple's settings are in the parental controls of the app is so that you can turn off games past 10 p.m. or whatever. But Americans would never let it be left to the hands of the state to do something like this. But it's interesting. Very, very interesting indeed. Well, so to, the, to your point, what's going to happen putting my marketer hat on is that people will uh, go for other devices. Yeah. So anything else, they will start playing console. And then maybe the article that you've, or the news that you've mentioned months ago about Apple uh, building their um, standalone gaming device uh, will then become handy because people will be able to set, you know, that you will have many limits on many, uh, many devices. So uh, in total, you'll still be able to play as much as you want. What's going to happen is just people will find another way, right? Like so, yeah. or another device where they can do the same thing. And this is well, this like cross-platform approach and people building games for all platforms, all devices. Um, this is how probably this is going to work. So the, let's turn it to India real quick, because the big headline right now is that India's IT minister resigns, as well as the broadcasting minister. But the IT minister must be the individual involved in these new IT regulations that are causing so much friction with Twitter, for example. Um, yes, indeed, the new IT rules, which went into effect in May. And it says there's no evidence that the... Uh, enforcement of the new IT rules in public exchanges with American technology giants are linked with their resignations. Sure, all social media platforms are welcome to do business in India. They can criticize the minister and the prime minister or anyone. The issue, the issue is of misuse of social media. Some of them say we are bound by American laws. You operate in India, make good money, but you will take the position that you're that you'll be governed by American laws. This is plainly not acceptable. Prasad had said at a virtual conference last week, and now he's resigning. Interesting. The new IT rules will impact the data privacy and security of Indian, Indian, Indian internet users, as well as the technology sectors. Uh, tremendous contribution to India's economic growth by imposing onerous compliance framework on both local and international digital media companies. And uh, while it's important to uphold user internet and accountability of online platforms, we urge the government to work closely with the industry to ensure that these rules are implemented in ways that mitigate the impact of online platforms operations in India and ultimately on individual startups and the country's technological ecosystem. Other ministers to resign today include the health minister and his deputy, both of whom were criticized for their handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The president, as advised by the prime minister, has accepted the resignation with immediate effect. 
I'm wondering if anyone, any of our Indian friends on the ground have any additional cultural local context to add to this. India's IT minister, Ravi Shankar Prasad, and information minister uh, resigned from their roles, adding to the list of high-profile local politicians who have vac vacated their positions ahead of India prime minister's reshuffling of his cabinet. Interesting. I, I got to imagine it has something to do with all of this friction with, uh, well, I, if I can put on my crazy hat for a second, if, you, if you'll indulge me, that, as it says, and I didn't know this, but now I do, that there's going to be a reshuffling of ministers soon. And so this minister who's resigning clearly can can read between the lines and understands he's, in some sense, not doing his job to the satisfaction of the prime minister, who I assume is in control of the minister assignments. And so if he knows he's not doing performing to the satisfaction of the prime minister. The question is, in what sense is he not performing to the satisfaction of the prime minister? And that's, to me, is the interesting question here, which is, what is he doing or not doing that the prime minister is unpleased with? And is it possible that the prime minister is unpleased with the fact that there's the prime minister clearly seems to be unpleased with these tech companies that are able to say things that he doesn't like? That seems to be quite clear in the headlines that we've been discussing regularly. Nalormi? Oh. I, th I think she's on the ground there. Or Sarah, you have an, any thought? I'm not on the ground, Tyler, but I'm literally searching in the net. What is the relationship between Modi and the IT minister? Right. And, and I don't have any expertise in this area, Tyler, but I would just say I think it has a lot to do with India. I do have a partner that's Indian. Um, has a lot of tech, and how was COVID so blunked up, if I will say, you know, I don't want to say effed up, but how did that whole spread happen? It still shocks me, because I have a lot of friends in India, and they have a lot of tech, and it's almost like they just got this big black eye. So if this is the IT minister, maybe he's taking the sword. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know, and I would love to know, and if I had to guess, I'm going to guess that it's related to the the fact that the the prime minister is not at all happy with how these big American tech companies are saying lots of stuff that they don't like, and they're not able to control it. They're trying to control it. They're clearly trying to control it. And maybe they haven't, this minister hasn't done as good of a job as controlling it to the, to the satisfaction of the prime minister. That would be my guess, but I would love to be corrected. So, um, Just to add yeah. a, a cultural context there, Tyler, yeah. I've not been there for six years, but in India, it's very, very common for the political parties to shuffle it around. And when I was having a quick look at the news, mm -hmm. almost 12 ministers had uh, done the resignation. It's not only him. Mm -hmm. So there are always a lot of big playing going on and there are interstate politics because our... I No offense to anyone, I don't like taking sides in politics, but the our the Prime Minister Modi runs the country like a business so he reshuffles the department often and it's a very common practice okay. but i am looking into it i appreciate it norm that makes sense i mean yeah just st statistically it's not that unusual anyways so it could be very innocent at the end of the day so here's a kind of related point uh google's cartoonist 
Manu Cornet quit Google after 14 years because he's so frustrated is the headline. One of Google's best known dissenting voices has quit the company after 14 years. His name is Manu Cornet, became notorious in the 2010s for his cartoons lampooning company policies. In a new interview, uh, Cornette lifted the lid on his next collection of cartoons. One of Google's most outspoken internal critics has revealed why he decided to quit the company after more than 14 years, saying, here's his quote, at some point I have to draw the line in the sand somewhere. In the interview he published yesterday, software engineer and cartoonist Manu Cornette told the information he disavowed of Google's partnership with the U.S. Border, border Patrol. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection. What is the partnership between Google and the U.S. Border Patrol? That's we less, we need to investigate that. And then it's and also he disavows Google developing and censoring search engine in China. A developing a censored search engine in China. Oh, is Google going back into China and complying with China? That's what this seems to imply. And the controversial ousting of two of its lead AI ethicists. So it's basically three issues. Since starting in 2007, uh, he has used art to critique the company uh, and has become prolific with ex-Google manager uh, Claire Stapleton describing him to the information as the text firm Moral Bellwether. Cornette published a collection of his work uh, in 2018. And he, the the article that I just tweeted shows some um, very funny uh, of his cartoons that are popular within Google itself. And now I'm realizing I have seen some of them. And the one about uh, the compare he did a cartoon comparing Amazon and Google and Facebook and Microsoft their corporate structures, uh, which is very funny all by itself. So that's worth looking at the tweet that I just twatted from the Tech News Twitter account, TNATW, and thank you to Poppy for finding that one. And now it appears uh, in the ongoing drama between Bill Gates and Melinda Gates in their surprise divorce, which some insiders say is related to um, the, what what was that guy's name? With the, the, the Jeffrey Epstein. That, Keto, yeah. Yes, that Bill Gates had yeah. connections to Jeffrey Epstein, flew on his jet and whatnot. And that's why once that was revealed, Melinda filed for a divorce. And now the New York Times is saying that Bill Gates can remove Melinda Gates from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Following the divorce, they will continue to work together for, um, uh, apparently they have a two-year test period uh, and at, during or at the end of which Bill could operate it independently. So yeah, to be determined. And now Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak stands against company's anti-repair stance, which by the way, Bill, um, convenient that he's saying it now, now that Bill, uh, uh, sorry, um, Joe Biden it was reported about 24 hours ago that Joe Biden's now doing an executive order to crack down and untangle all of this uh, right to repair stuff so that people will be able to do right of repair on their phones and their tractors, which are the two kind of hot topics um, um, on that. Uh, those are kind of the two main issues. But yeah, 
Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak stands against um, the companies like Apple trying to prevent people from repairing their own devices. Although Apple would say it's not your own device. It's still our device. You just have uh, you just happen to have it. So the what what is this one? Uh, Aaron, you had another article about uh, Goldman Sachs uh, or what's called United Credit. Didn't Aaron jump off the stage? It looks like he did. So it says uh, an example of a fintech tackling the model of credit and FICO scoring um, in Europe that this company called United Credit, spelled Y-O United, as in not me, but United Credit raises $170 million for its data-driven credit offering. And indeed, when you see the words data driven, that means that company is going to kill all of its non-data driven competitors. So I can comment quickly on this one because the, the founder is a friend of mine. So this okay. is a company that is a French company. And indeed, they are doing what most digital lenders are doing in emerging markets, which is to use the date, your digital footprint uh, being connected through APIs to multiple sources. So not only the credit bureau, but also all the other uh, available sources of information, including your phone when you apply digitally for a loan. So the, the nature of the loan is rather short term and um, they have been been operating for maybe five years now uh, and indeed they've raised this round uh, led by Goldman Sachs. Okay so I've got a few headlines here to bounce into an interesting one that Andrew in the audience shared via Twitter and you can share any interesting article that you find by simply including our Twitter account as part of your tweet TNATW as Andrew did and I just retweeted him to our what 3,600 Twitter followers and growing quickly, quantum computing wars are now underway. IBM and Honeywell make major moves as competition heats up between the quantum computers. And we had a headline yesterday that China announces they have the world's fastest quantum computer, passing Google. And in the US, of course, you got Google and IBM and Honeywell and others um, all racing to drive quantum computers forward, which we still have a hard time grappling with how uh, earth-shaking that will be when, once quantum computers are able to do more kind of practical use cases. Um, but here's an interesting article. I'm trying to remember who sent this in. This is wild. U.S. immigration westernizes the human gut microbiome, which means we're now starting to understand that our our gut biome or the microbiome has a huge influence on our mood and our personality and our decision-making that we are in some way con controlled by our gut. Hence the line, you know, follow your gut. And what this article uh, from cell.com is saying is that your gut changes based on your geography, which I can confirm fundamentally. I've believed that for a very long time. And I'll give you a great example. When I first moved to Tokyo and anyone going to Asia for the first time will notice if you consume any amount of water that you will likely have, um, I forget the name of it, but your body has to readjust to the enzymes and non-threatening enzymes and bacterias, help not, not harmful bacterias in the water, in the meat, in whatever, and it can be very uh, upsetting to your stomach <laughs> for the first few days. And this is a kind of a well-understood thing of people who travel a lot. 
and uh, especially of Americans going to Asia for the first time. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I remember when I when I first went to China, I even I even drinking water from the bottle. Yep. I get diarrhea after that. Right. It's very normal. Or yes. Mexico. Really sick. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mexico, Tyler. Yeah. It's I had same way. Same in by the way, same in France for Americans. If you eat meat in France as an American because they they have different regulations around how they process meat and it allows for more living enzymes in the meat that we don't have in America. And so an American stomach eating meat for the first time in France will also, this isn't like, that's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way. So it's, um, but this article is pointing out now that that effect also can have significant more impact and change to our uh, being than, than we first imagined. So I just tweeted out the article. It's quite a fascinating concept. And they even mention Thailand in this article where it says they collected stool and dietary recalls. I guess that's vomit uh, from 514 Hmong and Karen. Those are the, the traditional tribes in Thailand, by the way, um, living in Thailand in the U.S. And they compared these traditional ties. Um, living in Thailand in the U.S., including first and second generation immigrants and 19 Karen tribes individuals sampled before and after immigration, as well as from 36 U.S.-born European-American individuals using, you know, uh, metagenomic DNA sequencing. And we found that migration from non-Western countries, in this case, Thailand, um, to the U.S. is associated with immediate loss of gut biome diversity and function in which U.S.-associated strains and functions displace native strains and functions. These effects increase with duration of U.S. residence and are compounded by obesity and across generations. And this helps to explain, and look at the article, it shows a map of, of people in Thailand with a very rich gut biome moving to the U.S. where they stay thin once they arrive, but soon thereafter, after they become long-term residents, they start to become more obese. The second generation becomes more obese, and their gut biome diversity goes down, specifically the prevotella strains, fiber-degrading enzymes go down, and the bacterioides strains go up. Truly interesting observation. Indeed, Thais are quite uh, not obese in Thailand. And once they get to America, they seem to... Tyler, I would love to hear that Dr. Karan's on stage. So he might have some ad. Okay, feel free. So Tyler, I imagine you must be very lean in Thailand now. You do. Yeah, I feel that there is some kind of interesting benefit um, in, in terms of weight loss to living in Thailand. Yeah. But I, I, I also thought it was to do with weather and but what they're relating it to is the your biome diversity, your gut biome diversity. I guess it's also related to the food you eat, right? Yeah, but Japan also yeah. notoriously is, you know, much lower body mass index on average, much lower obesity. Yeah, because the food is healthy. That too. 
Um, After all, we are what we eat. So yep. I guess it really depends on our diet. And yep. I'm yep. also wondering, Tyler, yep. uh, the article that uh, you just read. Direct from the um, fisherman. I'm wondering how much um, is it just the correlation and how much uh, it is a causal relation. Well, after it's, mu it's a multi-generational study. They're studying the children of the children of the children. So at that point, I don't know that it's correlation. <laughs> it would be hard to maintain a correlation for that long. Well, they, they do. It's not a correlation that the, the that the diversity of the gut biome is decreasing. That's observational. So the longer you stay in America, the, the less diversity in your gut biome. That's replicatable. And then the question is, what effects does that have? Anything that you attach as a potential effect like obesity, then, of course, you still have to say it's correlational. But the decrease in gut biome diversity, that's observational. That's a fact. That's not a correlation. So... But the if you want to attach a hypothesis as to what that then leads to, like obesity or suicide or dementia or, you know, if you find other parallels between, you know, second generation ties also happen to have this characteristic, well, then that's a correlation. But so that that's kind of the it's, a, it's almost a, a, a semantical observation. But. Um, here's another interesting article. The U.S. says that humans will always be in control of AI weapons, but the age of autonomous war is already here. The Pentagon says a ban on AI weapons isn't necessary. Uh, but missiles, guns, and drones that think for themselves are already killing people in combat and have for years. And that's a new revelation. Missiles, guns, and drones that think for themselves, no human operators at all, are killing people and have been for years. Fully autonomous, trigger-shooting robots have been in operation for years, the Pentagon is now admitting publicly, in the Washington Post. I did not know that. I don't think anybody knew that. So um, it's an interesting article that, uh, fair warning, it does have a paywall, but that's such an interesting concept that uh, is going to become more important with time. Because, by the way, 24 hours ago, the U.S. Embassy in Iraq was just had a drone flying over it. That was, I, if I remember correctly, they shot it down. But we read that headline in near real time when that was happening. Just a couple other quick articles. A massive water recycling proposal could help ease drought. Members of Congress from Western states are pushing a $750 million uh, to turn wastewater into pure water. Here's how it works. Lake Mead, uh, which provides water for 25 million people in American West, has shrunk to 36% of its normal capacity. And we're, it'll probably get down to 10% by the, by the time you know November runs around. Uh, one rural California community has run out of water entirely after its well broke in early June. Fields are sitting fallow as farmers sell their water allotments instead of growing crops, putting the nation's food supply in peril. Oh, lovely. That's fun. You're running out of water and now you're running out of food because you ran out of water. No problem. No problem at all. I just have to find out what is this California town without any water 
and I just found the article. And that town is the only functioning well in the rural community. It's called Teveston. Teveston, California's well uh, or dam broke in early June, leaving more than 700 residents without running water as temperatures in the Central Valley soared to triple digits in a drought. And it's day-to-day for the people in Teveston, says Frank Galaviz, the board member of the Television Community Service District. Uh, They're near Fresno, and Teveston residents are relying on limited bottled water for necessities such as staying hydrated, cooking, bathing, and flushing toilets. They have no water. They're using bottled water to flush their toilets. And they're traveling to neighboring towns to stay with family or friends to shower and wash clothes. Welcome to the future where California is running out of water, where you go to neighboring towns to take showers and use bottled water to flush your toilets. It's time to get the fuck out. This is called, I've been saying repeatedly, water stress. The technical definition is water stress. You don't have access to water on a daily basis. It's currently 15% of the planet. And pay attention to the next words that come out of my mouth. It's going to go from 15% today to 60% of people in the next 20 years. More than half of the planet will not have access to water. More than half in the next 20 years. That means you need to start thinking about where the fuck you're going to go now. Just like these people in this town who have to go to the neighboring, their friends in another town to wash their clothes and take a shower and use bottled water to take a shit in their own toilet. They need to get the fuck out and start thinking about where they're going to go. And you do too, because it's 60% of the planet's going to have this problem. So back to the first article. That about the massive water recycling proposal, which they're now going to spend nearly a billion dollars on to help ease the drought. Indeed, let's hope these technical solutions come online, but let's not risk our ability to take showers and shits in our own house of whether or not this technology happens. That's not sane logic. That's not proper thinking. That's not critical thinking. Don't risk this technology happening so that you can stay wherever it is that you are currently staying. You need to have your take self-autonomy and take control of your own bowel movements and showering habits and start planning uh, for a more robust situation. <laughs> Don't depend on a startup that may or may not work. By the way, very few of them work. So don't depend on technology coming to save your dumbass. Get in the lifeboat now. Start get the the titanic's cruising lovely it's fantastic people are playing shuffleboard they're arguing about all kinds of stuff they're drinking tea and whatever go go with the other folks to the 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 back of the boat where the lifeboats are and the people putting on the jackets now and, and collecting flare guns and putting those in the jackets and getting in the lifeboat while everyone else is playing shuffleboard that you got you want to start thinking like that so uh yes there is all kinds of potential technological solutions Historically, we've not been so good at leveraging them to get ourselves out of deep shit. So, uh, but it's a fantastic article and let's hope it works. Let's pray to God it works. Let's pray, pray, pray that all of this tech is going to save our dumb asses. Historically, it doesn't. In fact, historically, it makes it worse. But let's be optimistic. So let's hope for... 
Uh, Tyler, I have some friends at the UN here in Bangkok uh-huh. that are working with gray water. Uh-huh. Um, and, and I don't, I don't know the cities offhand and I guess I can pull an article, but, but to your point, I mean, so things like washing your clothes, you know, you, you know, in some communities, some municipalities are actually using gray water as opposed to tap water. Yeah. But I, but I think to your point, um, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to necessitate um, an investment in infrastructure, right? And a change in mindset and habits. And those things happen very, very slowly. And I think by the time, you know, they prove all of the technology that could help us and then upgrade the infrastructural systems and then get people to change their thinking around it, I think it would be too late. Well, you have another aspect that needs to be addressed, which is the attackability of water supplies which has already been revealed by Homeland Security that multiple actors have attempted to attack water supplies in the U.S. multiple times and the energy grid and the water grid. So, and the oil grid, which by the way, was that was a huge, the colonial pipeline hack. So it's, it's, it's going to get interesting. And by the way, here's a, here's a something that, um, Lakeisha and I are intimately familiar with at the moment because Bangkok just had a huge chemical fire, a huge chemical factory exploded. This is the biggest news in all of Southeast Asia at the moment, that this factory, which is unfortunately a little too close to a lot of residents. uh, Bangkok is a very big city, 10 million people. And this massive chemical factory fire is now releasing toxic chemicals all across Bangkok, and now the rain comes and puts the chemicals into the water supply. And now the government's saying, don't drink water. Lovely. Don't, and by the way, don't, don't shower. During a different time of year, I'm so thankful, selfishly speaking, that I fled the city a couple of weeks ago, but you're so right. And for anyone who's been to Bangkok, the explosion happened within, I don't know, five kilometers, I want to say, from Subhanapum, so the main airport. So if you've flown into Bangkok, that's where the explosion is. So, so I, lots, lots of people are being implicated or impacted right now. Um, and are you grilling fish now, Lakisha? Yeah, Lakisha, yeah. get closer to your microphone. Yeah, but her point is, if you know, it's near the Bangkok airport and they expect these chemicals to hang around for quite a long time and it's getting into the water supply, into the ground water supply. This was a truly oh m- massive chemical factory, the biggest in, in, in Bangkok. And Bangkok is one of the biggest industries of Thailand is chemical processing. And this is the biggest factory. To- to- toxic gas too? Yeah, incredibly toxic, yeah. Well, the chemicals so, so the are, are making there, toxic that's... clouds that then make oh toxic rain that then go into the water supply. Oh, dear. So was it close to the DMK airport or the Suvarnabhumi airport? Suvarnabhumi. Suvarnabhumi, I think. Suvarnabhumi. Oh, that's, yeah. that's closer to the city, I guess, than DMK. No. This, They're the, both in the city, just the, opposite sides. The the, the yeah. Don Moyang Airport is in the northern part of Bangkok, and Savarnabhumi is in the kind of eastern, southern part of Bangkok. And this is more in the south of Bangkok, this factory. Oh, okay. Which is a very dense area of people. Um, all of Bangkok is quite dense, honestly, both around Don Moyang and near uh, the south where this happened. 
out near Savarna Boom, not that crowded over there. That's still pretty, still pretty busy. But um, I mean, you have an IKEA over there, just for an example. But um, yeah, it's this is good times, and this is my point: is now their water supply is fucked. Um, so a lot of people leaving Bangkok, and I see that right now. I have every endless people trying to come to my place uh, and but at the same time they're they're being told you can't leave bangkok because bangkok has covid and the rest of thailand really doesn't so we don't want you to leave bangkok good times be prepared <laughs> so um yeah and the factory keeps uh, reigniting for some strange reason second chemical fire at bangkok factory highlights health risks chemicals at the factory outside thai capital burst back into flames sending up another cloud of toxic black smoke and highlighting the continual health danger from an industrial accident that killed one and injured dozens more and no doubt will end up killing lots of people with cancer in years to come extinguishing the first blaze took more than 24 hours after it started with an explosion at 3 a.m and was heard for kilometers and blew out the windows of doors of many homes. Firefighters continued to douse the site with water and foam uh, to keep the highly flammable chemical styrene monomer from reigniting, but flames broke out again and little was left of the chemical factory other than the twisted metal frames that charred remains of its warehouses that were destroyed in the explosion and fire. More than 60 people were injured, blah, blah, blah. Police questioned the factory manager in their investigation of the cause of the explosion, who told them that he and eight staff members were woken from their sleep on the site by the strong chemical smell and fled just before the blast. Authorities ordered a five-kilometer area around the foam and plastic pellet manufacturing factory near Bangkok's main airport, evacuated as the factory burned telling residents to avoid inhaling any fumes and warning that they could cause dizziness and vomiting and cancer in the long term. That's, that's the words in the article. I didn't add that part. They, they are warning them that breathing the fumes could cause cancer, which, of course, if they're warning you about that, that means they know that it will. So anyway, there, there's now a five-kilometer perimeter uh, evacuation. But, of course, the... Uh, as it says here, Prime Minister of Thailand has ordered authorities to gather as much information as possible on contamination of soil, groundwater, the city's drinking water, and air, so as to mitigate the health impact in both the short and long term. Although the fire is under control, our work has not yet been completed, he says. <laughs> oh, no. Um, it's not, because you're going to, you fucked up your drinking water. So they now have new rules to prevent factories from opening in populated areas. Good times. So um, back to the water recycling. Yes, let's hope that works. And I'm going to leave everyone on that super happy note because we're going to meet again in five and a half hours where we're going to go through the rest of the fantastic headlines. And there will be no doubt a whole bunch of new interesting topics to jump into and a huge thank you to David for helping us unpack what's really going on in china with regard to their, the tech companies huge applause to david for doing thank you david and everybody and to and hi and, justin justin is on stage my god justin welcome back do follow justin and for his uh fantastic show that i you will see me at in about three and a half hours from now 
yeah. But yeah. we are not seeing Justin these days. She's taking a rest. Uh, I'm back. All right. Tyler's voice. That's why. Hey Tyler. Hey Tyler. I'll leave you with a. By Tyler, I'll leave you with a little music piece for you. Okay. There, uh, that remember that girl that said there's a music NFT protocol coming out. Yes. It's called Omni. Nice. And there's another one called AVOs. A V I O Z. Check them out.